All right, man. Well, let's dive in. Okay. Um, Have you done any other episodes of this before? Or nope, nope. This is number one. Oh shit! Yeah, okay. yeah. You're oh. the you're the virgin, the or the maybe not the virgin. I am anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, what virgins do. But um, no, the, uh, <laughs> I'll try to set the bar high then. Um, I just figured. I guess I'd come about it with my perspective. Absolutely. And my way of thinking is. Um, sort of philosophical because uh, I, I have a minor in, in logic or whatever, but also um, I have a PhD, you know, in psychology. So I thought I'd bring it about in a psychological way. 100%. Yeah. So what brought you to the subject, I guess, in the first place? Honestly, man, it's uh, basically my life. <laughs> you know, it's uh, initially I thought, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I wanted to write a book and I thought, you know, I'm going to write something out that would be interesting. And I started thinking, I don't really have any expertise per se. I have no degrees in, in something or whatever. So I thought, well, I'll write from my experience. And actually, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Jordan Harbinger. He's got a really cool podcast and I check his show out all the time. And one of his interviews, he actually said something, something about multiple points of failure. And it just like, it just clicked, it resonated. So I wrote it down. So I just immediately wrote out chapters to a book about multiple points of failure. And I just thought, I'll just write about my life because if my life's been anything, it's been a series of freaking failures. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But that's what's funny is, is, but those books sell, like when experts try to write things, they never sell. So like Amy's right. always like, why don't you write some drama? You know everything about, you know, a few set of things. Because, yeah. you know, when you get your PhD, you have to get in very specific things mm-hmm. and uh, or a specific uh, area. And so like, yeah. I'm like, I know, it's, I know everything about this and this and this, but that's all. Um, yeah. But people don't read that because it's just too nerdy. Like we don't know how to get like approachable, I guess. Right. And, uh, and I keep finding that I was, I was like, man, I'd like to write a book. But then every time I see someone they do it and it's like kind of real just like from a, every man's perspective or every woman you know where they're just like here's my experience with this and it just resonates i read them too it's not i'm not being like oh how right. dare you but i find myself reading them i'm like what the hell am i doing it's so interesting <laughs> though because yeah. everyone can get a hold of it um so i love it and yeah. there's awesome i think for um, psychologically speaking um and for me because a uh, particular kind of therapy i practice as well is uh is focused on acceptance you know and of failures and things but the, the funny thing about failure though is that we have an inherent like we hate it right we, yeah. we have an inherent uh dislike even even like down to like animals right like an animal they go to chase after that rabbit they lose and they're like it would be weird if um evolution didn't prepare them to be upset at that right it would be weird mm-hmm. if they're like that's fine and then they just starve right yeah yeah but i didn't need that <laughs> rabbit yeah exactly they're like yeah, it's fine. uh so obviously like we don't like it and uh but what screws us up i think is um and this is a big gonna be a big thing a theme about my thoughts on this is language in general because mm-hmm. like language opens us up to concepts right if we just say like if there's a rustling in a bush we understand that that right you know you're walking up to a water hole on the, on the savannah and you see that you're like whoa oh shit and that's normal but we as humans can conceptualize a future or a could or a would or should or what if right. bushes rattled and suddenly we're presently scared about a situation that doesn't exist yeah um so it's really interesting. And so like um, we have this inherent fear of this could, should, what if of failure when we haven't failed yet. Like what are we so right. what are we nervous about? Yeah, it's like going uh, to the bar and, you know, and there's that girl over there and I won't go talk to her, but she's not going to care about me. I mean, but, you know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> Just terrified she's going to reject you and you haven't even haven't even walked over there yet she doesn't know you're there yet exactly and what's funny is that um as humans too with language we can rationalize that failure is okay right right have you had the like i'm sure you've experienced talking to people and they're like well you're gonna fit you know even like your mom like 
you fall down, skin your knee when you're trying to do a sweet skateboarding trick when you're a kid or something, you know? Yeah. And she's like, everybody fails. It's fine. Um, and, and we rationalize, we understand that. Like it's hard to find a human besides like maybe, well, there's a few, um, but uh, who, who don't think failure is okay and normal. We just want, we just want a teaspoon of it inside of our cups and cups of chicken broth yeah. of awesome. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah Cause failure sucks. So, but it's, that's what's so funny is that our brain knows it's okay. But our, yeah. when, when it comes time to experience it, we're like, mm, I don't think so. Is that, yeah. that, that's that amygdala response with the, you know, with the uh, hardcore emotions, like, oh, this sucks and it feels bad. But realistically, anybody who is a success will tell you the best things they learned was from their failures. They would never trade their failures for that any better success because it was their success, you know? Mm -hmm. It's funny too, because uh, like with, if you're a lioness on the Serengeti or whatever, or the uh, you know Savannah or whatever, mm -hmm. you're running around and you fail to get that rabbit, like we were talking about earlier. There's no social shame, right? Right. <laughs> it's yeah. Not like on yeah. Instagram, they're like, you got clowned, you know. So uh, there's a funny, yeah. there's this funny uh, idea too that it it compounds the idea that we're social animals. And uh, we, we have this, uh, it's called social comparison theory, mm -hmm. where you're constantly, it's, it's a strange phenomenon where we find that successful, more people who tend to succeed more in life and consider themselves successful are comparing themselves up all the time, which is both good and bad because it can also cause you anxiety. But um, people who are like kind of falling short of what they would say are their goals or they self-report that I'm falling short, they compare themselves to people below them because they're like, I only shot up heroin seven times today, not eight. So I'm not doing so bad, right? Yeah. yeah. So failure is funny in that way too because of the concept and uh, how people deal with it. But for sure. Anyway, like, what do you think yeah. as far as, as far as that goes? So upbringing kids, you know, when you're a, when a child, you know, so many people say, oh, our childhood, it's just, you know, my, my dad beat me and my mom was an alcoholic or whatever. And it turned right. me into this. I, I, I guess I wonder for myself, you know, even my own experiences, but what, what impact do you think really upbringing has like your childhood? I mean, how impactful is it to have this horribly abusive family or, you know, super competitive dad that wants you to be the all-star on the team and you never quite live up to it? You know, does that, does that affect you Come later? Like, now I got to be a accountant because it's the only way I can really succeed, you know? Right. Actually, what's fortunate is that we've done a few studies on that in psychology. Um, but uh, one of the difficult things is how do you measure success, right? Like, because do you interview the person when they're seven and say, what do you want to be? And they say firefighter and they're not, and you go failure. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So your goals change so much. It's hard to tell. But what we did find is that people who tend to repeatedly make goals and repeatedly achieve those goals, um, that's something we can measure. It just takes a lot of time because developmental Anything in developmental takes, you know, measuring from a certain time to a longer time, but just sure. some further point. But they found that, um, uh, yeah, there's a few different things. One, uh, this is really interesting. Um, I don't know if this is perfectly relevant, but there's one about like high succeeding athletes they did uh, that they looked at. And this is really cool because they, they looked at like the high, the best fencers in the world, the best Olympians in the world, the best uh, Golden Globe boxers in the world and things like that. And they, they try to determine how it was they were raised. Um, and one thing they did find um, was that those, the parents who just chose that activity for them and just pushed them their whole life rather than giving them a wide berth of experience one or, or typically win more but i hate the message that sends yeah yeah <laughs> right like mom and dad told me to do this well uh, but another thing they found was that uh oh yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's how how you deal with the failure right like there's kind of two different ways to go about it there's well there's only two things you can do in all of life in psychology right it's either appetitive so it brings you towards it like an appetite or an aversive something that pushes you away so you can punish or you can you know reinforce an, a behavior and um and you you can treat failure as two different things and that this kind of this is starting to get a little maybe i'm getting a little cerebral but is uh, failure typically is an, is an aversive. It pushes you away. 
It makes sure. you feel like, um, dude, that sucked. I didn't like that. I don't really care for that. And there's different ways people deal with that. And I could get into that, but there is a way that you can use that as an appetitive. And we found that like some types of students. So one of the other studies was about uh, looking at high achieving students. And, and they found that uh, they, they tended to obviously treat failure differently. They actually tried to treat it as an appetitive. So they hmm. treat it as like, oh, that's a challenge, right? Sure. Yeah. Sure, and, okay. uh, just like, don't tell me I can't do that. Exactly. And since they're students, obviously it has to do with their upbringing, some of which they found on their own, but much of which has to do with, with um, parents. Yeah. So um, that, that part's interesting. There's actually four different kinds of students. There was failure accepting students. So students who, um, you know, they, they just kind of realized I'm at, you know, I'm at the bottom rung in the achievement. Um, some of them are working out and I'm kind of okay with that. Um, then there's failure avoiding students. And uh, this one is kind of interesting because they would fail, but they would avoid the consequences of it so they'd say like uh for example they'd fail a math test and instead of like just sitting with that and being like i suck i'm a failure i didn't do well um they go this teacher sucks and everyone else is smarter oh not, not everyone is smarter I mean, that's actually accepting but you know something like that right sure they find a way to make an excuse for what they're doing um the next one is over strivers so people who just absolutely cannot tolerate failure and then there's um success oriented students and the language kind of screws us up, but which one do you think is the most successful? Or which one do you think is the least successful? Oh, the least successful, I would imagine, probably is the both of the first two you put in that camp is the, the avoidant and the That's accepting, because they're they're both going to be not really motivated to change much. I guess the avoidant, at some point, they might be able to come to terms, but I guess uh -huh. then so could the other, really. I'd put those two at the bottom, if it were me. Obviously, the the people who use it as a driver are going to be the more success-oriented ones that you mentioned. I would say would yeah. be the most successful. And yeah, that, that's intuitive, and it mostly makes sense. Um one, one surprising effect was they found that overstrivers, so people could not accept failure, actually fell in the third to last or second to last place. So they actually fell below the fear accepting or the fear huh. avoiding. Because um, fear accepting, obviously, it's a motivational issue. They're like, sure. well, I just don't care. It's like me if someone goes, you're not so great at cricket. I'd be like, okay. that's fine. <laughs> right? like, yeah. I'm, I'm never going to get better because I don't care. Yeah. But like failure avoiding means that they do care, but they're just making excuses for themselves. But like exactly like you said, it was perfect was you said, yeah, but eventually someday they're going to have to come. Uh, what'd you say? Come come to fruition or come to. Yeah. Come to terms with it. Come to terms yeah. with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but the overstrivers actually get to a place where they burn out. There's they try to try, try and then they think every failure, they internalize it. And then eventually they go, they just start burning out and they just fall off. So they actually huh. do. That's exactly right. They fall in third place of four. And obviously the, the, the researchers called it success oriented students. So I was like, that's kind of a giveaway. But they measured them mathematically and they found that these you know, factual analysis, so you look at a scatter graph and they clumped up in four different spots. And that's how you name the four. Um, huh. And they did find that these people did um, behave in a certain way. And a lot of it was predicted by developmental stuff of the parents. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it's about developing huh. the contingencies of appetitive and aversive in sure. kind of clever ways. Anyway. So that makes me wonder in my adult life, having raised children, one of the things I've come to really, really hate is when I hear parents tell their kids, oh, you can be anything you want to be. You just got to set your mind to it. And for me, I'm like, but you're just inviting failure because I can't be a fighter pilot. I have to wear contacts, you know, right. you know it's just not going to happen for me. So it's just, you know, and what about the kid who ends up with MS? He's not going to be the world's greatest champion athlete of anything. So I, I don't know. What's your thoughts on that? I, I hate that. I personally hate that you can do anything you want because you cannot, <laughs> you know. Right. So did you, have, did you have that experience? Like, was that something? No. I mean, yes, my mom did that a lot. 
uh, when I grew up, but I, I don't know that that ever really stuck. I never, I, I didn't really, I don't think I got raised with a lot of competitive drive only in my, now my forties where I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, this, this is not working for me. I need to do something more. You know, I'm, I'm more motivated now to, you know, invest in things and, and try to build businesses and stuff like that, as opposed to just going in and getting a paycheck and making sure I make enough money. But I never was super competitive. Even when I played sports, I wanted to be good, but I just didn't have that drive to be the best. I just wanted to be good. So mm-hmm. that's what I, when I practiced, I practiced fundamental things to get better, but I never needed the limelight. I wasn't raised with that competitive drive. That's interesting. You said I never needed the limelight. Yeah. Um, is that something that you think was differenti- differentiated you between some alternate reality where you would have been this insane athlete or whatever, or whatever competitive better? I think maybe. Um, I think some of the ways that I looked at that was like my uh, a good friend of mine growing up. He was like the, of course, we went to a tiny school. We had a graduating class, of like 17 people. So, but he was the star athlete. He was the one. And I think maybe, maybe I got the sour taste because he was very like, egocentric and he was like all the attention on me which we all are in high school but when you're the star athlete in a school of like 40 people (laughs) you have literally all the attention so i think it may have been sort of i don't know it may have been off-putting for me you know on a deeper level then so i probably couldn't have identified that then it's interesting too because uh you're talking about you know cultivating competition and stuff and it does have the premise that competition is or the desire for competition is what produces success but I also think it's interesting that um, developmental wise, we do find it around like, and every, I think everybody knows this, but it's, I think it's a, a lot of people feel validation hearing this is around 14, 15 um, individuals who are you know developing find that they have more social influence than they do, you know, parental. And so um, at that point, it's difficult because we were talking about fostering competition to um, have much more influence past that time. So like, I, I always try to, or I, I'd like to put a timer on, a, you know, parents and be like, all right, look, Around this time, you know, you got to dig them in with, you know, the kind of friends that, you know, you think is best for them. Because, God, I made the worst decisions of my friends. I think everyone would. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'd be like, I'd be like, whatever, duh, whatever, or whatever, mom, I'm a goth now, or, you know, whatever. So, <laughs> <laughs> which is not who I am. But yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the competition thing. There is some biological research. Uh, I remember that was done because um, they were trying to look at like the brains of people who were um, more uh, successful and who, um, how they treated conceptualizations of success. And I do remember that there is, um, there was a small correlation with testosterone development, you know, which kind of makes sense considering we're actually a trophy species. Have you heard about this? No. Oh, okay. So there's two different kinds, you know, trophy species and um, the sexual dimorphic species. There's a certain kind of bird, for example, where unless you look at their junk, you cannot tell which one's which. Whereas like, let's say a buck versus a doe is kind of a classic trophy species. They call it that because, you know, the male is so sexual dimorphic, die being no different, morphic being the body. So um, sexually dimorphic because they're male and female are very different. And so, and they behave very differently. Whereas in, or sexually non-dimorphic, sorry, um, uh, species, those are the ones that are um, more typically also behaviorally more more alike. And they tend to be more monogamous too, which is kind of weird. Well, it isn't weird because the idea of the trophy species is that the male goes out and what does a buck do when it's mating season? Yeah, like, everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and they go crazy. They, they do mm-hmm. something called rut, which is like they, they just start digging into things. They do like rubbing, like they're literally they'll, they'll walk in with just blood on their face because they went kind of crazy. And then they fight each other for a female. Um, and the idea is very much like a lion's pride where the male, they call it trophy because they treat 
uh, women as trophies. Like, you know, they're like, oh, I have like five of them. And so I have this big pride, but it's just me and my brother or just me. And I'm, you know, I've got all these women, but those species have higher levels of testosterone. And so obviously the testosterone is what's driving them to be so competitive. Um, so we have found a small um, idea of that, but, but the strange thing is that a lot of it isn't explained by the testosterone. We find people that aren't just like jacked up on roids that are succeeding. Obviously, they may be getting in fights in IHOP or something at midnight, but they're not. <laughs> but Twitter they're not, arguments. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. That's definitely me every time. I'm like, well, someone talking about psychology on the internet. I'm like, here we go. But yep. um, uh, but that's not always uh, testosterone either. So much of it, this is what's so great about being human and having language and conceptualization and intelligence is that we can form concepts of things like, for example, failure. Like a lion doesn't really necessarily know what that is. Right. They may be a failure. They may be someone who doesn't do so well and they leave. And But it's, it's not because they have a concept of failure. It's just that every time they interact with the larger ones, they have to do this thing called displacement, which means, you know, backing up and, and showing like deference to the, you know, the bigger male. And then, but we get that by concept. A successful guy isn't the biggest, you know, lion. It's just a guy who was like, you know, he's done pretty well in life and we find him intimidating. And then suddenly we like kind of avert our eyes and we feel like, um, because the answer is this crazy part. Okay. That's what I was going to get to. Sorry. Last, last bit is that <laughs> in those species, they ostracize themselves from their own pack. So like a young um, adolescent male uh, lion who's, you know, his dad's kind of the main dude and he's got, you know, she, he's got some, some lionesses and they're doing great. And this guy doesn't do so well. They, they actually ostracize themselves. If this is chimpanzees, this is an apes, this is baboons, this is um, everyone. They ostracize themselves. And then they oftentimes, and this is sad, but they slowly die. And so the idea is that um, because, because they can't, you know, support themselves. It's not that they're just like laying there like, oh, this is terrible. I'm going to watch Netflix all day. Um, they just <laughs> slowly don't make it. Uh, huh. Failure to thrive. Well, so we get that, but we get that, but what's crazy is we get that as a concept. We don't even have to be like this, you know, unsuccessful yeah. male who's trying to catch these gazelles and can't. We just go, well, I feel like he does it better than me. So, and we just depress ourselves and socially isolate, but I don't know. I, I feel huh. like it's that is very interesting. You can kind of see it too, even in, you know, guys and you have the one or two guys in, in a group that are going to be the alphas. And then you have, you know, you got the guy at the bottom, which we'll get to that later, but I, I actually think the alpha beta thing is bullshit, but whatever. It's a, there's some reality to it, I suppose. But, but, you know, you have those guys that, like you said, sort of kind of pull away from the group and just sort of, oh, Tim over there, man, he just keeps getting all the girls. And so I can't ever get the girls or oh, those guys so cool. He's got the big job and I'm just, you know, I'm still in the mail room or whatever it is, you know, and so they, they will eventually sort of, yeah, you just never really see them again, <laughs> whether they, whether they die or not. But I mean, you know, you just, what, what happened to, to Jim? Where'd you go? That's funny. You said the mail room. We're talking about getting girls. You're <laughs> stuck in the mail room. Man. <laughs> yeah, right. No doubt. The, the meat locker. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Yeah. So going from there, how, how do you think that, do you think that it has any sort of play, you know, moving into like academic and career choices going from there. Like, what do you think in terms of all that upbringing you went into the, into the army and then, you know, decided on a career in psychology and those kinds of things outside of just an interest in psychology or whatever it was that motivated you to, to, you know, to enlist, what sort of things do you think came from upbringing? Or do you think those were just, you know, random choices one day you thought, gosh, I think getting screamed at for six months will be great. And then ship it off. You know, (laughs) what, what motivated those things for you? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, I mean, this is why I think it speaks to me is that it, it was a lot of failure. It was like, well, it's perceived failure. And that's, what's so interesting 
is we were talking about concepts. And I think that's important Mm -hmm. because once we know that a failure is a perceived failure, because Mm -hmm. um, as we said before, like, let's say someone shoots up heroin seven times to eight times and they don't consider that a failure, they're not going to quote unquote learn from that lesson. Like their behavior doesn't change, but um, if they do perceive it as a failure, they do. And so for me, I perceived my shortcomings as failures. Um, whereas, you know, I mean, I was coming from a, like kind of a, a really bad job kind of thing. And, uh, sure. and we were super poor, like, uh, we, you know, couldn't afford our own clothes and stuff. And so our neighbor, we worked at project love, which is obviously an army would bring us these bags. So I had these weird shirts that were just like a rainbow and it was on a green shirt and it just said like love. And then, <laughs> so I got picked on a lot and, but I consider those social shortcomings, my fault because I did pretty well in school. And I was like, man, I don't know. Like, I feel like I had friends, like a few. And I feel like I'm succeeding when I press myself on things. And I was a big, like, beginner drawing and just, just small things as a kid that you consider a success. It didn't make sense to me that I was failing in other things, but I perceived it as failure. And uh, failure gives that unpleasant situation. It's that aversive, if you allow it to be, that causes you to go like, like, I don't want to fail anymore. I don't want that bad feeling. I, I push forward into this successful thing or this thing where I can be successful. Yeah. And so like, I never got into like um, athletics or anything until I was much older. Um, I was just all about the cerebral stuff. I just wanted to be like the smart kid. Yeah. You know, and, and then of course, you know, once puberty hits, you want to be successful with girls because all of a sudden the very first girl was like, you look kind of cute. And I was like, she's clearly lying. And she wasn't. And <laughs> then, then I was like very interested in being like, oh, I need to learn how to be handsome. Yeah. So, yeah. And so, so I think, I think a lot of it is that is people's perceptions of fear. Cause that's the interesting thing is we were talking about failure being a concept and not a mm-hmm. reality. It's not a, it's, there's no tangible thing that's called a failure. Sure. There, there are behaviors that can be termed as failures, but like, if you try to catch a light particle, you're always going to quote unquote fail. But if you try to catch like a, the only reason why it's embarrassing to like a lion, for example, and again, not embarrassing, but why, why he perceives himself to fail is because you can catch a gazelle. Like, you know, he's seen it happen. He's, he's seen his friends do it. He's seen other people do it. Um, if he, <laughs> they've never caught a light particle and been like, dude, look what I got for dinner. It's never. <laughs> and so they don't consider themselves failures. And so, um, we, you can, I was fortunate enough to operate on that concept of what failure is termed and what success is, is termed, I guess. And so I was like, this, this is a way in which I, that, that brings me to another subject, but um, yeah, it, how, how people deal with success and failure psychologically, and then how that makes you go down or up like kind of therapeutically, but yeah. yeah. Thinking back to what you were saying about, you know, being the, always wanting to be the the smarter guy or whatever. And then girls start showing you some attention. I think I learned early on that I wasn't like the physical prowess. I mean, I was a skinny kid growing up, uh, you know, never was the best looking guy in the room kind of thing. So I was always like, how do, how do I motivate this? You know, what's cause my failures with girls were pretty excessive. <laughs> so and yeah. then as, as a high schooler, I was like, all right, I got to figure this out. So it motivated me then to, to be able to think on my feet, to, to try to develop a sense of humor and those kinds of learn to talk and whatnot. So right. yeah, it motivates, it motivated something, you know, those failures did. So uh, that, that brings me to my, yeah, my next thought is, did you consider those, um, we were saying failure, do you consider those failures a um, was it kind of like a slight or a dig at your self-worth or was it something different? Oh, absolutely. At that time, for sure. Being, you know, a young kid, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It, it made me feel, you know, very unworthy, I guess, very small uh, and insignificant. Right. Um, and even when I did experience any success as it were in high school, it just, it didn't do a lot for my self self-esteem anyway. It didn't boost me in such a way. It's, you know, it didn't motivate much in that respect. Right. So, wasn't until I, I mean, got older. That. And then you said athletically, though, that you also experienced, you know, failure, but, mm-hmm. um, but that didn't sort of boost you to be like, I'm going to go get jacked. Like, yeah. I mean, 
right away. And then, so I wonder what did that have to do with in relation to with self-worth? Did you have an idea that that was attacking your self-worth? Um, did you compartmentalize it? Did you, uh, I guess, like, how did you deal with that? Uh, why was it different? You know, I don't know that I dealt with it all that well. I think it motivated the slight changes, like I said, to, to look at, you know, how was I dressing? How was I interacting? Um, and at the time, I didn't think that I could do much about the, uh, the physical prowess. I couldn't change how I looked and I didn't think I could get any bigger because I tried and tried and tried to lift weights and put weight on. It never happened. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that was just, I mean, even now, most of the weight I've gained is in the middle. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's just yeah. one of those things. But yeah, I don't, um, it's kind of hard to, I don't know how to articulate the impact it actually had because it, it didn't stop me. So I didn't just sit around and mope and, you know, become the kid in my grandma's basement kind of thing. But I also, it didn't motivate me to be some, you know, get jacked in the gym and become this Don Juan, you know, be whatever Dan Bilzeri and on Instagram and being a fool. So, so I, I guess it just sort of was a, maybe it was mitigating the impact on, on what my success could have been <laughs> to some extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, Cause there's kind of two different ways to make yourself remember if, if, if all of how we interact is based on our evolution, which is to pull forward or push back competitive or aversive. Um, the most important thing to think about is, well, what we call reinforcement schedules, which is a schedule, you know, is just when you do something, obviously that's all. Right. So when you reinforce um, and if you make those two lean, so if I go, look, the first time you run uh, 15 feet to your mailbox, I'm going to give you a new car. And you're like, well, shit. I mean, almost everyone would do that. Yeah. But if I said, okay, you did it once. Now when you run 6,000 miles, I'm going to give you about 15 bucks. That schedule is too lean. Like that we call it too sure. lean. It's not, it's not meaty enough. It's, it doesn't produce enough results. So we need to tighten those down. So oftentimes what I'm wondering is it sounds like you had this desire, this um, this, this desire to be like, you, you didn't perform athletically. Like I didn't either. I was the exact same boat where I couldn't not put on weight, but like, it didn't quite work. And no matter how much you worked, you were like, you know, that didn't produce a whole lot of reinforcement, but this, you know, me kind of spending a little more time, like, you know, with, you know, hygiene or, or, you know, interacting with girls or be trying to be funny, like that did work. Um, and so as that, that was a little more like a better schedule. And so it pulled you towards that, that form of, you know, quote unquote success. So um, that's interesting. But what's really cool is the flip side of that. So you get those schedules that are real lean and real um, you know, kind of meaty that are there. The contingencies work out, but you can also make those conceptual. So like, uh, you know, it's, it's as simple as saying this, you have a kid and instead of just giving him a car, you know, or cars extreme, but like giving him like, let's say I like steak, for example, like giving myself a flamingon when I run 12 feet or 15 feet. Um, instead for the kid, we just say like, like, Hey, that's a really good job. And that's a concept, right? Like if you don't right. speak English, you have no idea what I just said. And you go, what is this guy talking to me for? You walk <laughs> yeah. off. But the concept of good job and my, you know, approval and, you know, um, and what I'm doing is quote unquote, right. Um, is, you know, gives you a small little buzz, you know, you go, yeah, sure. that works out. So you can use conceptual, you know, appetitives and aversives as well. Um, so, you know, uh, that could have been both ways. You could have been, you know, getting kissed right in the face, which is, you know, an obvious normal. Um, yeah. you're like as a young boy, you're like, that was the best. Or it could just be like uh, the concept that like, you know, you're hot shit. Cause like you walk in and, you know, you notice more eye tension, more, um, you know, behavioral tension, laughing, things like that. So yeah, that's kind of cool. Cause it can give you those two different, yeah. um, two different ways to attack. And is it possible then? 
you know, with the appetitive and the um, aversive, is it possible that in our brains, we sometimes switch those because Mark Manson, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He talks a little bit about the idea of, of emotional highs. And even sometimes you could be doing something that a lot of other people might be repulsed by socially repulsed, I suppose, like thinking of, you know, everybody call oh, that guy over there. He's kind of a man whore and we're kind of, like, but you know, some people might subtly be like, I wish I was a man or whatever, but for the most part, though, that socially, it's kind of, it's experienced some disgust with somebody that just bounces around with partners, but that person is experiencing emotional highs from what they're doing. And that's why they keep doing it. They're getting some sort of reward somewhere. So is it, is that just like a switch up in the brain or is that just because they just don't know what they're, <laughs> they don't understand the difference between actual good reward? Well, sometimes it can be like, for example, masochism, right? Like people who like to get beat. Like they honestly do get a pleasure sensation from getting hit and we've measured it and they do get a larger hit in their ventral tegmental area. So we know that that pain was pleasurable uh, in the same way that like taking a quarter of a benzo would be right. Like they literally go, whoa, like that felt great. So we know that that sometimes happens, but that's typically it's, it's people's, that's the, the separation between concepts and actual behavioral understanding, because a lot of people try to mystify, and I say this on purpose, mystify, not demystify things that are actually pretty simple. Well, they're deceptively complex. So sure. like in that example, like someone like, you know, being a quote unquote man where they think like, oh, well, that's something that is socially, you know, an aversive and he's still, you know, still approaching it. It's still appetitive to him. So it must be like that there's some, you know, uh, disconnect there. Maybe there's something a lot, oftentimes they say, you know, maybe he was raised wrong. Maybe it's a, a screw loose in the head like this, you know, mechanistic behavior or a mechanistic physicalist way of thinking. Um, but it's often not that it's often that like, um, whatever is pulling them towards is just greater than what's pushing them away. They understand the concept that people have towards them. They're not naive of that subject. Sure. And so like, typically in therapy or whenever I'm trying to analyze the situation, it's, it's that like, I try to understand like, okay, but it's more than it isn't. Cause like, I don't like running. Like, yeah. If people say they like running, I'm always like, you don't anything about psychology. Cause you don't. <laughs> yeah. Cause if I could take away all of the terribleness of running and you can have all the benefits, the runner's high, the health, the, um, the body, everything you wanted, you do it. And then they're like, no, I wouldn't. I'm like, then you're dumb. Yes, you do. Cause <laughs> yeah. there's parts of it you like, but there are parts you hate. And we joke about, and I know this because I've been to tons of races and we talk about it. We say things like, oh, you ever get those blisters on your feet and you're only at like mile 10? And they're like, yes. You know, or like, you know, like, um, oh, I forgot my, you know, my nutrition one time and I had to run a half marathon and it was terrible. And you're like, yeah. Or like that kind of thing. You have bad moments sure. and, and things that push you away from it, but you have more that bring you towards it. And so usually for those sorts of things, it's people bring themselves towards it, sometimes conceptually, because people are somewhat good at understanding a reinforcer that's physical. Mm -hmm. Um, something that, you know, cause I mean, you give a kid a piece of candy and they're like, well, he did it for the candy and you go, great. You understand that. But there are different kinds. There's positive reinforcers. So things like candy, like if I said, you know, um, or, or Steve, well, you know, run with me, uh, you know, I say running a lot. I use this in therapy a lot because <laughs> running sucks. And people, once they realize that they're like, yeah, it does. Oh, I hate or, running. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nobody loves it. I run all the time. I don't like it. I like it. I like it more than I don't like it, but I don't like it. But if I said run with me five miles and, and let's say, and you would, let's say hadn't run in years and you were just like, fuck it. All right. And I paid you a hundred bucks to do it. That's easy for people to understand. They look at the hundred bucks and they go, well, you know, maybe you go out a nice dinner or something. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It makes sense. But if I did it, there's, that's a called a positive reinforcer, positive meaning I've introduced something into your environment reinforcer. All reinforcer means is it has now improved the chance or the probability that you'll do that in the future. 
Um, so when people go, the reinforcement didn't work, I go, then it wasn't a reinforcement. It has <laughs> yeah. necessarily speaking, it has to be. And when it doesn't, you go, oh, I guess that wasn't a reinforcement. And so like, um, so if I give you a hundred bucks and you, you were like, I don't need five miles. Let's say you make, you know, let's say you're Jeff Bezos. You'd be like, I don't need a hundred bucks. No, you know, because yeah. that's important. Um, but a negative reinforcer is something that's kind of uh, people don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like, let's say I was your wife and I've just been bugging you. Negative means taking something out of your environment and it increases the probability. Let's say I'm your wife and I'm like, you fat piece of shit, get off the couch <laughs> every day, every day at 9am, you know, it's coming. And then one day you go, damn it. All right. And you get out and you do it and you come back and she doesn't do anything. She's taken the, the argument out of the environment, but now you're more likely to do it. The problem with that is often people go, well, that was intrinsic. And you go, no, no, no. If you were home alone, sitting in your grandma's basement, you wouldn't have run just then. You did it because you knew it would mean a day that was one day less of kind of getting harangued for yeah. bad habits or, or, or a habit you wanted to do. Um, so, anyway, so so that one, that's another explanation of those sorts of things is people start to uh, misunderstand this. Because there's also negative punishers and positive punishers. Positive punisher would be like a ticket when you drive. A negative punisher would be like uh, a tax cut when you, um, you know, when you engage in business opportunities, right? You've taken the tax out and now you're more likely to do that in the future. Um, gotcha. But people, people, and people un- misunderstand those two negatives as like intrinsic or like, you know, I'm a better person now. You know, like, oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm the same person I was when I was born. I just have, I was fortunate enough to have repetitives that brought me towards good things and reinforce uh, uh, versus that brought me away from bad things. Hmm. Anyway, All right. All right. Maybe that's so- too nerdy. I'm, I, I tend to fluctuate between way too nerdy and not nerdy. And, <laughs> oh no, no. Good stuff. You know, some of the, a lot of these concepts, I don't put a lot of thought into. Sometimes I do. And I think I know things and I'm like, I'm not sure I actually know that. <laughs> so, right. so like risk, risk is one that for me, most of my life, I've been pretty risk averse. Like I didn't want to, didn't want to go do this thing because, whoa, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to invest my money here, put it there, whatever it was. And risk, I think necessarily leads to probably more failure than it does success. But mm-hmm. maybe then after that, it leads to more success. So, I mean, I, I think there's like sort of a, maybe it's a counterintuitive that the risk may lead to some failure, but eventually it will lead to more success. And I think that that's a big part of what for me has held me back and created more failure in my life and success was that I was just too afraid of risk. You think that's a, that does that make sense? Yeah. Do, did you find that people who were particularly risk aversive had a predictable relationship with success in your, in, in your experience? I would think so. Yeah. I mean, anybody that, I mean, I think mostly of myself, but people that I do know that have also been like, Oh, I don't really want, you know, investing is gambling. You know, I think of an example, I was uh, years ago, uh, I had some money when my dad passed and I was going to invest it. And someone convinced me that it was, you know, it was even it was a good investment. It wasn't a stock thing. It was right. um, something called like an active managed fund. It's kind of like a mutual fund, but it's a little bit more aggressive. And it's it would have Apple computers. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so silly. Like, why would you want to buy Microsoft stock? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so they convinced me that it was a bad idea, that it was a gamble and I should, you know, just hold on to it, put it in my savings account where it would be safe and that kind of thing. It led to, you know, I, I would have had probably three times as much money now than I did then if I had invested it when I wanted to. Mm. That mentality, I think that that those people didn't take a lot of risks. They did the the you know the degree and the good job and the whatever and and then retire kind of thing. So yeah, to answer that question in a slightly shorter way, I would say yes. I think that the risk averse necessarily leads to more failure than it does success, and sort of creates that just that cycle that I didn't risk that money, even though I watch other people. Oh, I'm going to take this thousand dollars I've got. It's all I've got. I'm going to put it in this thing, and then boom, they're like, I'm a millionaire. 
<laughs> I'm yeah. like, what? You know, so <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a it's a strange thing to to see, but I, I yeah, I do think so. I, I think that that in my experience, the risk aversion has created more failure, or at least led to more failure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, th- this is interesting because um, this is sort of like a male and female IQ. I don't know if you've heard this before, but it's something we've you know studied IQ extensively. We know IQ better than we understand you know insulin and diabetes. That, that's how much. Uh, and and that's an empirical statement that was, you know, it was published in JAMA, uh, Journal of American Medical Association, but one of the most prestigious in the world, the third most prestigious in the world, um, is that they were like psychology IQ knows more about it. So when people are like, you don't know IQ, IQ, I'm like, bro, have you ever, <laughs> have you ever had known anyone who got a blood test? We know more about that than we, you know, about that. Uh, but Oh, so, you know, some of the interesting differences is obviously, you know, there's race and gender and, you know, uh, like a place in the world, nationality, there's all kinds of cool answers you can come up with. And obviously a lot of caution needs to be done because, you know, like, obviously there's been this, this guy who pushed off on this whole thing of you like, well, African-Americans are have a lower IQ than, you the know, curve. <laughs> Americans. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, well, yeah, be weird <laughs> if they didn't. Yeah. Anyway, because of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. It it has nothing to do with their ability. They're not like born with small brains. Like, Oh, look at me. I'm small. No, dude, that's just achievement. Uh, So so there's been a lot of controversy, but I could, I could totally address all that, but, um, but it's legit. And, but one of the things that's interesting, and this is, I'll bring this back. This is why is male and female are interestingly different in IQ. Women are on average more intelligent than men. So like the average male is, you know, about a hundred. That's about right. I think it's like 98, 99 last in like 2015. But the female is like 102, 103, 104 um, on average. Interesting. But there's yeah. something way more interesting about that is that actually women have less variability. So they're a cluster like this. It's so like if you took a bell curve, it'd be kind of a tight one, right? Mm-hmm. Males have this weird long tails on both sides. So like we have a lot of intellectual disabilities, like on the low side, like the extreme disability, uh, intellectually disabled are males, but also the super geniuses are males. This is weird. And huh. I have no idea why that's the case. I mean, you could make up tons of theories, but we don't know. Yeah. And so the same thing with risk. And so with risk, you find that people who are risk averse are in this tight curve of fairly successful because they don't make dumb mistakes, like buying 1600 lotto tickets. And, uh, but you also see that they don't tend to, yeah, they don't tend to really just nail it. And when they do, it's really strange. Like mathematically, it's strange. It's exactly, it sounds like it's an insurance that you're going to stay where you're at. You don't have the risk of failing, but you also don't, it's very difficult to succeed. You know, because everybody knows that guy from high school who was like the risk, the non-risk averse who would like just headbutt the coat machine, you know, those people <laughs> where you're like, yeah. that makes sense. It's not funny. And now you're going home and suspended. Yeah. But then you've got the people who are risk averse who ended up, you know, diversifying their portfolio. Or, yeah, undiversifying their portfolio and going all into Dogecoin or something and making millions. And you're like, yeah. what happened? Uh, but it's, it's, so there's a lot of luck they found, but also the biggest thing is that, again, it comes back to that, you know, appetitive and aversive. If you're, if you, if you have an appetitive, if, if you're super averse to risk, let me put it this way. My form of therapy is, um, is very, that makes sense. You're not crazy. I say that every single patient, every person I've ever seen, because if I don't understand it, I'll think they're weird. And then I fail as a clinician because <laughs> everything makes sense. If it's true that people go towards things they want and put away from things they don't, there's never a case I should not understand. And if I don't, I need to ask more questions. Right. And, and so far, I've never had a case I didn't understand. I get there and I go, Oh, okay. No, they just click. I got it. You feel this and that's, you know, and so um, with the risk aversion, like what causes that person, they, there's more that attracts them. So obviously people, because I'm also risk averse and I'm attracted to that um, large payday. 
Um, but I'm also too averse to it. It's why I don't gamble. It's because I go, right. Yeah, I could make money, but I could also, but it's more likely that I would lose money and it is more likely, but, um, and, and more, and this is the big part is that I don't have the safety net to save me if I lose, you know what right. I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So like, I yeah. came from a, a non-privileged background in the sense of economically, at least I'm obviously I'm a white cis male. I'm doing okay. But like <laughs> money wise, I, I had no safety net. But my friends who did were like, oh, now I'm a private pilot and I fly to like, you know, Aruba. And I'm like, it must have been nice to pay those $16,000 to get their private license hours. Right. Uh, but yeah, while you were also diversifying your businesses, you had four different ones. Wish I had that. Because if I fail, I'm literally out in the streets because my mom even told me, she's like, if you don't go to college, I cannot. I don't even have a place for you to stay. Whereas uh, people who were like, oh, my first eight businesses failed and I won. You're like, yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't have <laughs> cool. that. So yeah, it was that was that the case with you? If I remember right, you did, you didn't necessarily come from like millions of dollars. Oh no, yeah, we, uh, <laughs> actually, my uh, my parents did try to. You know, they definitely lived as though we had more than we did, which I oh. think impacted the way that I managed my money in my early twenties. You know, because I saw my parents, they didn't paint a, a realistic picture. You know, they didn't. Uh, they weren't like, no, we can't do that. We don't have the money for that. You know, they always found a way to make it happen, but not creatively. It was you know a credit card or something like that. You know, those kinds of things that it just didn't make a lot of sense to somebody who would look at that financially. So. No, we didn't come from money for sure. And I think that I think that is a big part of why I did the whole oh, I'm gonna go off to, to college. You know, I went to John Brown and I was, you know, I was an engineering major originally. Um, and found that within about two weeks that I really wasn't into that because <laughs> yeah. the, the the calculus blew my mind. I thought I was good at math in high school and I got to college. I was like, oh no, this is not what I learned in high school. <laughs> so but yeah, I, you know, I drove towards that, take the take the necessary steps to build that secure life. You know, and the reality is that it it's just there isn't any security in it. And I think that's why maybe now as I'm getting older, I'm learning more to be like, hey, I think they take a little risk here, you know, as I'm got this much money. I'm still though, I'm like, well, I don't want to put all of that into one thing because if that goes, you know, tits up, then I'm like, well, shit, I want all my money. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's still a, a hard push, you know, um, to, to get myself to take some risk. But that was, that was definitely my, my thing. You know, like you mentioned the gambling, anytime I've been to a casino, I take 20 bucks, you know, that's it. Mm -hmm. If I want to gamble 20 bucks, that's it. Doesn't matter if I win, lose, whatever, that's yeah. all I'm doing. I'm not putting any more money in. And I think one time I won in a casino and I, I had three bucks on me that night. I put it in one of the machines. I ended up making like seven. And then I went ahead and played that. And I ended up making like 50 bucks, you know, I was like, oh, sweet. You know, that's it. And then I, I still though, you know, I was like, oh, I could hit it one more time and who knows what it'll be. And I was like, nah, cash it out. I'll walk away. Then what did you do? And did you find yourself back at the casino more often? I assume nope. no. Yeah, no, no. Yep. It wasn't an, a, the, the aversive was too strong for the competitive because that's what happened to me. Like I went to a uh, man. Do you remember Michael from the coffee shop? Uh, dark hair. He's Iranian. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Well, when I managed it, he was, he was a friend of mine and he had poker night and he was like, oh, you have to first it's free. And he's like, but after a while you can get into the $10 buy-in. And I was like, all right. And so like, eventually it was like, oh, but now you can get into the 40, $50 buy-in and come to think of it, guys, probably a gambling problem. But uh, I was like, all right. So one time I was like, I'll go one time, but I don't really, I mean, I was like, I don't like poker. It's too chance. Yeah. And uh, there, there's a lot of, you know, skill obviously, but, but sure. a lot of it is chance and I don't, I'm not a gambler, but eventually I win. Well, when I went, I did pretty well, you know, like I made some decent decisions, but you know, most of it's luck. And uh, as soon as I got a big hand and I bluffed them into going all the way, 
I was like, cool, I'm out. And they're like, oh, you can't. And I was like, excuse me? And they're like, like no, it's considered bad manners to like win a big pot and then just leave because people want uh-huh. to win it back. Yeah. And because and, and I was like, I was like, ah, but what's the premise of that? And he was like, uh, you know, not being a person of logic. He was, I was like, um, oh, the premise is that, um, you know, it's based on the logic that over time, a better player will win their money back and anybody can get lucky on a hand. And I go, correct. And I go, and which I did. (laughs) I agree with, and I understand you're going to make the money back. It would be foolish for me to stay then, would it not? And then he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm cashing out. He was like, you might not get invited back again. I was like, okay. He wasn't going to come back anyway. But like, and even though I made my one time at the big money, you know, big money at the time, big money table that I won big, I mean, big, I won like 400 bucks or something crazy. And, you know, as a college student, you're like, what? I never went back. And they were like, come on back, come on back. And I was like, no, like, I'm <laughs> yeah, not what? dumb. Yeah. I know what happened. Yeah. Oh, oh that's great. That's, that's funny. You, you same, can't same leave <laughs> the mafia. Yes, <laughs> so we have a gun or yeah. i'm leaving with 400 bucks bro yeah. i don't know if you guys can see what i'm doing right now but i'm actually taking the money <laughs> and i'm putting it in my pocket and i'm heading and I'm, for the door I'm leaving. Yeah. <laughs> so stop me yeah. if you can <laughs> wow yeah that's uh, yeah exactly i mean that's the thing i can't i can't bring myself to to do that even with poker i'm like all right i got five bucks you know no it's a ten dollar buy-in well then i'll uh I'll watch because <laughs> I'm not going to do more than five bucks. What, yeah. Once you've been truly hungry, you never want to be back there again. And that's yeah. the thing I think is you, if you know that that's a possibility and it is, if you don't mm-hmm. come from privilege, it, at least in economic privilege, um, you, you have to think to yourself, that's real. And once you have kids, it mixes it up, doesn't it? Because I'm like, well, I don't want oh, yeah. kids in that mix. I would, I, and I constantly was a kid. You can't help but go like, I want, I want a ticket to go. You had to be in the top 10 in the school academically and you could go to space camp. It was in, um, I don't remember, but it was in the South and we were in mm-hmm. Arkansas and they drive you down there and I, w- I really want to go. And I was like, space camp. And they're like, well, $69, which haha, but also um, that's a lot of money because we had no money. <laughs> and and even the vice principal was like, look, we're going to get this down. We got, you know, a little bit of money in and, you know, we can get it down to 29 bucks. And my mom was like, we literally are so far in the red. We can't do that. And I was like, fuck. And so I had to say no. And they handed it over and it sucks. So my name got called in the intercom and everything. I mean, like, that's how poor we were. And so knowing yeah. them, I was like, all right, that's not something I want to do. And I remember thinking to my mom, I was like, mom, what the f- dude? Like, I was, I couldn't help but be upset. I was, I was like, why would you put us in this situation? Like, what does decisions did you make to get us here and i don't blame my mom now because i understand her situation but um sure. but at the time you know as a kid irrationally i was just like what the heck and i never wanted to have my kids experience that mm-hmm. so yeah it was a lot of that middle you know the bell curve real tight none of these because i don't want any of that yeah that's interesting you know because I, I i think about that in your situation there where your mom was like we just can't do it and then i think to my situation where my parents would have just figured it out they would have gone into debt for 30 bucks to so i could go on this and not miss out on the experience and i wonder Bobby's talked before about how the way that he grew up, you know, he did not want to live like his dad, you know, in a double wide and whatever. He did not want to do that. And so now I wouldn't say that Bobby lives a whole lot better than his dad did. (laughs) He is, he's in a better, he's not in a double wide, but the money that Bobby sits on, I have no idea how, I mean, there's Bobby has probably just a shitload of money he's sitting on. Yeah. And as far as I know. Yeah. yeah, Right. To me, I'm just like, why is he such a miser all the time? You know, with with anything like, you know, Bobby, so, so I just, I think about that and I think, you know, your situation, his situation, mine. And I think that, 
I wonder the how the impact was different because for me, my parents created this environment where I didn't ever miss out. I always, I almost never was told no. You know, then when I have kids and my kids are growing up, I don't know if it subconsciously motivated me or consciously motivated me, but I didn't just let my kids have everything they wanted. You know, and there were times that I just said, "Hey, look, we can't afford that, guys," because there were times that I struggled financially with you know with all three of my kids when I was a single dad. I just wonder, you know, what do you think? How does that those different impacts of being told no as a child or were never being told no as a child, you know. I don't know that I was spoiled, but I was rarely told no. Hey there, podcast listener. Have you always wanted to start your own podcast? Have you been listening to this one and thinking to yourself, man, if he can do it, I can do it. Well, you're not wrong. And thanks to Anchor, you too can have your own podcast. It's super easy to do. So easy, in fact, I've been doing it, but I probably couldn't do it without Anchor. All you have to do is record your episodes, upload them to Anchor's website, and they'll do all the heavy lifting for you including distribution, groovy stats to see if you're awesome or if you suck, and even finding sponsorships, like this one, that I'm doing. So if it's your lifelong goal to have your own podcast or even just a useless pipe dream, Anchor can help you with that. Just go to www.anchor.fm to get started. That's www.anchor.fm. Anchor. All your podcasting needs in one place. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think one of the most interesting things is that it sounds like it's almost like two different because I also had this propensity to just go, like, I want to provide for my kids in a way that my mom couldn't like we never went on. I didn't even know what a family trip was like, I didn't even know what that was. And people like vacation, vacation, I thought it was like a rich kid thing. But then one of my neighbors did it down the street who had, you know, a a regular home. And I was like, regular people go on vacation. So like, yeah, I've never been on like never been to Disney World. I was like, no. And they're like, you've been like across the street. I was like, no, like, because like we were so far in debt, I wasn't allowed to answer the phone because we were bankrupt. And, uh, and, and so I was like, I was was like, okay, but it also, so it caused this sort of, you know, like the tightening down of the bell curve, which we were talking about, like where I don't want to take too many risks, but it also caused me to want to like, you know, I bought virtual reality for my kids. Like, what the fuck is wrong with me? You know what I'm saying? Like, cause I was like, I was like, man, I really want my kids to have a cool experience. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because Bobby's on the other side of that, where he tightened down so hard that it's, uh, I mean, he's probably happy with his life, but like, uh, I wouldn't be happy with his life. I, I don't, yeah. I don't like that level of constriction, but I, I don't know. I mean, like I, maybe it's because uh, part of mine too is anxiety driven. Like I'm very, uh, from more of an anxious background, you know, where danger was very real and around the corner at all times. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, it's like, you, you're obviously averse to those situations, but also you're really driven towards this idea of tranquility and peace. And like a different lifestyle, you you want to go, you know, like uh, do these more important things. But I don't know. I don't know about research for that. I, that, that. That'd be really interesting to look into. I'm thinking of things like um, kind of shifting gears away from risk and moving towards um, some of these other things. What do you think about the influence of other people in terms of a circle? You know, like your circle of influence, not having like if your circle is too small, you know, if you only got two or three people as opposed to, I mean, I don't, you know, you don't want thousands of people, but how much impact do you think having too small circle as opposed to, you know, people with 8 million friends or whatever, or, you know, I don't know what the cap is on Facebook now, like 5,000 or something. You don't have 5,000 friends. Nobody does that. Right. You know, how much do you think that actually influences someone in their decision-making? Something that my therapist said to me once was, um, you know, if you listen to yourself too much, you're going to become selfish and alone. And if you listen to other people too much, you won't ever know who you are. You know, you're just, it's everybody else's, it's not even your decision anymore. Mm-hmm. So striking that balance, I think makes sense. And I guess maybe I'm answering the question myself now, but, um, <laughs> but 
where do you think that balance is? Do you think, you know, can you have too small a circle or too big a circle? It's interesting because I actually uh, studied this when I was looking at internet relationships because of uh, mass murder suicide. One of the ideas was that it happened. That, that, that was my thesis. That was my specialty was mass murder suicides and, and violent propensities and how, you know, acquisition models, like how, how it comes about and that kind of thing. But uh, one of the things I was looking at was, um, you know, was I had to understand a lot about internet relationships. And the reason why I bring up internet relationships is because there is no way a human like us could have a thousand friends, right? But right. you can have a thousand followers easily on social media. And so it's really screwed our, our problems because in reality and how we were, were raised and, and how we um, evolved is that you only have so much time in the day. Like you can only have so many friends and some right. people do select smaller groups of friends and some people try to, you know, diversify their time. Um, and that's almost exactly as you'd predict. That one's pretty safe and easy to understand. And it's that, um, you know, if you have a tight group of friends, you typically, obviously you value their friends more. You tend to go to them for, it was um, uh, recommendations. You go for them for opinions and you go for them for, oh, just time. Yeah. Just fun, fun times. Makes sense. But then when you, as you start getting bigger and bigger, it started kind of getting a little hairier because it was like, well, you typically get a close group of friends. And some people said there were three groups, you know, concentric circles of friends. And some people said it was like these, you know, trained graphs. And I tend to think those people are silly, but the three circles make sense to me. Your tight group of friends, your quasi group of friends and your acquaintances. Uh, but social media, unfortunately, here's, here's the thing why this is important. The tight group of friends, if like my type of group of friends said something like, if my wife walked up and she goes, that shirt looks stupid. I would go, Ugh, like it would hurt, right? Like, and if the second group of friends, like just my kind of friends like that shirt looks stupid i go uh. but if a queen has walked up me and said shirt was stupid i go uh. you know what i mean yeah. that makes sense those are three you know usefully different responses but what's crazy is social media doesn't do that you can get twenty thousand followers and suddenly you think twenty thousand acquaintances are more important than your closer circle you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. so yeah. like twenty thousand people go like oh cute bathing suit and the people who look close to you are like you should cut your hair short and then the person close to you goes no you shouldn't and then they you know and you go <laughs> what are you doing and so like it's this strange relationship between numbers and we conflate that with intimacy so the sheer number of people um, the frequency of likes it, we think is intimacy and it's just not but it makes sense because typically it's it's wired in the idea of that frequency means intimacy like the more mm -hmm. i'm with my wife the more she can positively reinforce me and so she does and so she has more interactions with me and so necessarily she influences me more than other people but now with social media not so much and so i, I just hope people can get that concept and then um push that out but i don't know how to battle it because the competitors are so strong i mean you get paid for having tons of followers nowadays and so oh, wow um, youtube and whatnot yeah and like you know like instagram and like stuff you know like you, i mean i'm sure you've seen them they hold up a little bottle and they're like fit aid yeah try it. and you're like really yeah so <laughs> or just if you're an influencer you know you get these opportunities to fly oh. to these spots and take pictures and so so it's almost like two separate questions one is like real world and then social media and the real world, you know, we know a decent amount about it, but social media, we found that previously thought that it was interactions because it was actually worth one tenth. It was one tenth when we measured things like video games, like when people played like Call of Duty or like World of Warcraft or just interacted with people on chat and stuff. It was about worth one tenth of a friend as far as like influence and uh, their propensity to help or harm our mental health. Uh, because we understood that it's online. Even if I talked to someone 10 times as much online, it was only worth one actual friend that's semi-close. Um, but then I don't know, I haven't seen any studies since then based on the number, the frequency of likes basically versus, you know, someone's influence closer. But I do know that it's been talked about much in the literature about the fact that, yeah, they, they it hits harder when there's more likes or miss more dislikes. They go, this guy sucks. It's like tons of them. We just have this negative cognitive bias where we just focus in on that. So. Huh. Um, 
interesting yeah. so that that's what sort of drives the friend whoring and whatnot so that people are yeah. like you know i gotta have three thousand friends because every time i post this awesome selfie or this hilarious comment and it's funny because i I'm, i'll be honest I, i've even found myself you know i'll find something funny yeah. somewhere else and i'll post it i'll share that yeah and then i'll be like oh man only three people thought that was funny but then i'm like that's not even my joke why do i care yeah. <laughs> you know, i didn't come up with that i just shared something else that made me laugh and other people might not think it's funny it, it's funny how you know and i've I, I'll dial that back and catch myself and why am I upset about this? It's dumb. <laughs> so yeah. there's a, a distinction then. And obviously I think makes sense that at least it's intuitive that the distinction, of course, in the real world, having 3000 friends would be impossible where <laughs> in, the, in the virtual world, you can have 3000 friends if, as it were. Yeah. It's almost like studying those pop icons, you know, like Justin Bieber or whatever. It's mm -hmm. that you can't possibly have, you know, 6 million fans or friends. And yeah. that every time you walk out, you know, like if I go out on stage, like this is exactly what it's akin to is going out on stage and be like six million people. And they all look and they go, here's my breakfast. Here's a close up and me as a selfie, you know, that's yeah. Instagram. And then getting six million people to be like, you know, that's, you're like, yeah. well, eating breakfast is awesome, but it's not that, you, you know, we contextualize. We're not stupid. We understand that, you know, that yeah. that's just internet likes, but it is positively reinforcing. Whereas yeah, when you and I post and I'm like, look, eggs and bacon, like my, my mom is like, cool, honey, make sure you get vaccinated or whatever. And I'm like, okay, you know, it's not the same. But, yeah. Six yeah, million people don't give a shit about my breakfast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll do that too. I put up funny stuff for like, you know, some amazing dinner I made. And I'm like, dude, check it out. I slow roasted this for six hours, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Some real accomplishment. And then they're like, they're like, oh, that's cool. Like one person, you know, is like, oh, that's awesome. Hey, I saw a cat, dead cat on the side of the road. And I'm like, not important. Rude. That's uh, my thing. But uh, anyway, yeah. it's crazy. Don't, don't hijack my post. Yeah. <laughs> That's just as interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I guess just bouncing right off of that, the next thing is not knowing who you are. Like, and I, and I mentioned that a minute ago, is, you know, taking oh, right. too much influence or, you know, not having your own thoughts. I think that is a huge part of, for myself, what has led to a number of failures for me in my life is that for the longest time, I don't think I really knew conceptually who I was. I didn't know what I valued. I didn't, I didn't, you know, put those things down and not knowing that led to just, oh, do I want to be a bartender? Do I want to be a project manager? Do I want to be an actor? Do I want to just this constant slew of trying new jobs as opposed to just this is what I think I'm good at. And this is what I want to do. You know, only now in my, in my late age, my old age, have I come to those grips with those things. So what do you think of that? How, do, how does knowing who you, who we are lead to those things? Well, that's interesting. What do, what do you think you mean by um, knowing who you are? Well, I guess in the sense that, and I think it would probably come back to knowing the things that we value, because I guess ah. who we are is pretty fluid, knowing what we value and, and right. being able to say, these are the things that are important to me. And always being able to, for the most part, act on those, I value integrity, you know, and that's one mm -hmm. thing. And so then my actions should align with that. And so if I'm doing things, you know, if I don't know that I value integrity, I, I can't say that I might do things that are somewhat unethical and that kind of thing and lead to mm -hmm. failures. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like you've or started to look into that. I, I found that um, value is obviously a huge part of you know how I practice because I came from, I was trained by Kelly Wilson, who's the guy who, one of the guys who invented ACT, acceptance commitment therapy, which kind of like the mm -hmm. new hotness in the research, but values, he was the values guy. That was his portion of that. Um, hmm. And so I trained under him. And so I was a huge on values. And uh, he would say that values is the compass on your boat. Like there, you can sail all day, but it doesn't matter. Good, you sailed, you know, and like five years later, like still sailing. I'm the best sailor in the world. And you couldn't be the best sailor in the world, but you never really got to where you wanted to be. And so like, uh, so I, I, yeah, I do think that, I mean, 
it's no surprise, but I do obviously think that values work is great. And there's so many cool ability or things you could do in therapy. There's simple things like uh, the one that spoke to me the most um, was that. And the one I like to use is I say, and you know, you slow this down. I'm going to do this quick because, um, you know, I don't want to waste your time, but you slow down and you say like, so I'll give you an example and then I'll just speak over it quickly. But first you say like, okay, you know, I'd like you to you know, close your eyes and come into contact with the present. Now think about people you value the most. You see their face, brings you joy. You can't help, but as you think of them now, you may find yourself smiling a little bit. So anyway, you go about that slow because what that does is it, it shuts out. If you go do this too fast, people have this tendency to cerebralize it or in, intellectualize it. And then they just kind of skip over and they're like, yeah, okay, I get the point. And you're like, no, 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 this is important because our brain operates differently when it's pressed than when it's not. There's two different parts. Of, well, there's three, four, five different parts of the brain that happens. But generally speaking, there's two different ways to process it. And we tend to process it too fast when we go too fast. But the idea is this. Think of those people you love the most. And you think, okay, now it's you're at your deathbed and now you've passed. And now they're giving your eulogy. You're, you know, the person you love most, they, they slowly picture the person, select it. They're there, all five senses. And then what are they saying about you? You know, what, what are the things they're saying? Another one I really like is, because this has happened to me, is that catch your friends, your best group of friends. Let's say it's your bachelor party, bachelor party, whatever. Just the people you can bring in from anywhere. No expenses cost. They come around the corner or you come around the corner and you just happen, you come back with like maybe the beers early or you're like, oh, I got the food or whatever, right? And as you come around the corner, they don't know you're there. And then you hear them speaking before you get there. And sometimes it's bad, but imagine in this situation, it's the best possible things that could possibly be saying. And I find that so useful because people often, and I myself included, find self stuff about ourselves that I didn't know is, is I'm like, I guess. And you think of each person, like maybe I say maybe four or five people and you go to each person, what would they be saying? And so not only is it the values aren't, you know, they're somewhat objective, but also we, we desire different behaviors to meet these values out of different people. And so I find that um, doing values work like that um, is super important because yeah. like you said, like you, you find out it's the compass on your boat. Like you go, oh, that's where I want to go. And it sounds like you have been driven since the very beginning because you were talking about contacting um, these desires early in life. And then, but, and you worked your ass off in all different areas. And I've, I've worked with you. I know you work your ass off. Like you're a hard worker. I mean, we did fucking landscaping together. I understand yeah. we, we busted our ass. Um, I, I know what it's like to work hard, but you know, you're saying like, you know, you were, you were the best fucking sailor on the water. You just, your compass was like kind of jacked. You were like, what's mm -hmm. wrong with my compass? Yeah. So I, I think values work is incredibly important. Um, yeah. and in fact, the most important thing I think that you can do in life. And there's a lot of cool activities. Um, if anyone ever gets interested, they can ask or whatever, but, but yeah, I, I think, I think it's awesome. Incongruence of values is where you act in a way where you say you value something and you don't, you act oppositely. Mm -hmm. We've all done it. And I've oh, sure. <laughs> of course, sure. <laughs> where I'm like, oh, dude, I value health. And then like, I'm just cramming food. <laughs> my chili yeah. cheese dogs, repeat, I ate four. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that what I... I got turned on to those values, kind of understanding the values, I suppose, was I mentioned before, Mark Manson, he uh, wrote a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And it's, it. It, oh, for me, it was a game changer. That, really? it's, and that's kind of what led me to think about writing from experiences, because that's what he does. He's no, he, he's no certified, you know, degreed expert in some such or another. He just started writing things on a blog and then started traveling and whatever, writing his experiences out. He talks about values and understanding that that's where you have to come from and being able to not react 
emotionally and, and let our feelings take control and all those things. And just knowing all the time and grounding, everything comes back to grounding the values. And I think that's kind of then knowing who you are, because who we are, like I said, is kind of fluid in, in my book, but knowing my values, if once I could say, okay, these are the things that are important to me, then I was able to look at everything in my life and go, oh, that's got to go. You know? yeah, yeah. And so, and I did that. I dropped a lot of dead weight when I started understanding my values. And so, yeah, I, I think it's pretty critical. Well, I think there's a great quote that comes from Kelly as well. Like my guy, who, uh, one of my mentors, he said that values and vulnerabilities are poured from the same vessel. And the idea is this, like, if you get hurt by something, you have something to learn just as much as and failure, like we're talking about here, that's why I bring this up, you have something to learn just as much as you do when you succeed, and you feel good. So like, let's say you, you know, you're a filmmaker, you make a movie like Dustin Solomon, you know, succeeded in this movie venture where he was you know doing CG and stuff. And he learned a lot about himself. He's like, Whoa, CG is pretty cool, too. I like the production side of it, as well as I do the director side. But failure can also teach us just as much. And because you know that um, the vessel you hold that you're valuing, you also find vulnerabilities. You find that like, um, so for example, like I want to be a good husband, for example, or like a good, uh, well, in this context, let's say a good psychologist. And so um, if I do something correct, it feels great. Like if I help someone and they go, you like legit, you know, saved our marriage or like I was on the brink of suicide and everything's better now. Like I don't even need therapy. I go, whoa, like I feel good. What? obviously flip side of the coin. And this is the concept I use a lot flip side of the coin because it's the yeah. same coin. And just like in marriage, you, you like someone who's ambitious, but you also don't like when they're bullheaded. Those are the same thing. Yeah, you just for sure. ran against it in two different ways. <laughs> so same thing here is that, um, yeah, like, like I, just because I, I value um, this expertise in psychology and helping people in uh, understanding their, themselves better, not even so much as like therapy's fun, but like, I really enjoy the science of it. And, and because of that, if I fail or if I say something wrong, I like, I listened to an old podcast I did like probably four years ago. I remember I said one study incorrectly. I came up with it wrong. And I still sometimes wake up at night and go, they're going to think I'm wrong. Like, yes, you know, <laughs> they're going to believe this. Like it bugs yeah. me. And so, yeah, I, I think that's interesting is that we're talking about the psychology of failure, but as you probably already know, we're also talking about the psychology of success because it's the exact same thing. Yeah. Because yeah. it yeah, doesn't absolutely. matter what you fail in if you don't want to succeed. I, I think that the values thing then too kind of leads into kind of, I hate the idea of when people say, find your purpose, you know, discover your purpose. I don't, I mean, I think you probably all have a like mind. That's not something that's just out there to, well, there it is. There's Jeremiah's purpose. There's Steve's purpose. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that we create ourselves, you know, that we understand, oh, this is what I want to do with myself. And I think it's driven by values and passions and whatnot. And I think that one of the things that, and this may seem obvious, that leads to huge failures is not having that purpose, not knowing what it is. What mm -hmm. am I doing? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm swinging a pickaxe all day because I'm planting trees in the ground and making people's houses look pretty. But what is my purpose in that? Where's my value in that? I think that's pretty key. And even now, I'll admit, I'm not entirely certain that I've crafted that purpose just yet. I think I have a good idea where I'm headed, but I think that leads to failure. What are your thoughts on that? And in the sense of having an actual purpose and what drives you every day and whether or not you fail, succeed, et cetera. Yeah. I find that one of the, this is, that's interesting that you, you put it that way. Um, is that I, I think that I've one of the, I find myself coming to metaphors a lot, you know, when you work with people and one of them is that you find yourself in a rut because for me, this spoke to me whenever I first heard it and it was like, what happens is rut obviously it's used all the time, but I mean, right. the, this concept of you find yourself in a valley between two mountains and you know, on the other side of both mountains is where you'd rather be, but it's such a struggle and what you're doing kind of works 
you know, you're looking at the valley in front of you and you're like, I can just keep walking this way and everything's kind of, it's not going to get bad. You know, yeah. it, won't, it won't get better, but it won't get bad. But if I go up over this mountains, it's a possible, I can't see it. So I don't know, but it could be better. But then you go, I'm so exhausted from trying because I've been, you know, I'm in this rut yeah. that I don't know if I have the energy to get up over there. And so yeah. I think that, um, yeah, it's talking about um, the idea that like uh, people get stuck in some, some situation where they're swinging a pickaxe, you know, digging a hole. They're doing whatever they're doing. And then I often find, and this is a lot, I find that people um, are find themselves, you know, questioning, yeah, purpose, values, uh, who they are, quote, quote unquote, like all these concepts of like, yeah, but like I've been working hard. I don't understand why things aren't working out. One of the, okay, this is the best one. In marriage, this is huge, is I'm like, because <laughs> you interview the person and you say like, you go, what's going on? And what's going on? Each person talks. And this part's, you know, for this example, this part's irrelevant. They blah, 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 blah. And it's just some terrible story. Something terrible going on. They both like really feel like it's failing. Literally had people show up with the divorce things in hand and I had to sign it. Oh, like, I'm not going to sign it. Give me three sessions and I fixed the marriage. And they're better now. But, um, and one of the things is I was, I was like, okay, so what is this, you know, what's going on? And it is just, oh, just terrible stories. And then I'm, I'm like, okay, <laughs> here's the tra trap question. What are they doing? What could they do to fix the marriage? And you ask them, you don't ask with the other person, you know, cause you don't want to offend them. You don't, you sure. say like, I'm going to interview you personally and you can leave them for a bit. And I'm going to do the same thing with you. I'll ask the same questions. There's no secrets here. And, and you just said, what could they do to really help this? And they say, and then you go, what are you doing to help this after you ask that? Because it's important for the context for them to understand that they're asking a lot. So what are you giving? Yeah. And so, so then you go, okay. And you ask the other person. And what's funny is you find that both people, no matter how bad the marriage is, it, are really working, doing a lot of shit. And so mm -hmm. you're like, you do this, you do this, you do this. Like you're making coffee. You're trying to give him a kiss in the morning. He doesn't like it. You know, you're, you're like leaving him little notes. Um, you're doing this. You're doing, and the other person's like, I fill our car with gas. I, you know, change the oil. I, you know, make sure the yard's always mowed. Like there's all these things they're doing, sure. but the other person just doesn't get it. And so that's the idea of like, you know, just working and working and working towards something without a clear connection to the value in marriage. It's for the other person, but sure. personally it's, it's your own value. And they're, they're spinning their wheels. I always say spinning your wheels. And they're like, yes, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And I'm like, that's it. Like you can be working really, really hard and appear that you're doing no work mm -hmm. when you are. And so same thing with the values things. I think once you connect with those values, it's, you know, it's so much more, use a nerdy word, fecund, right? Like yeah. each action causes, sprouts more opportunity for action. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's you know, exponential growth. And so, so I, I think, I think that's, yeah, that's exactly it. It's that people swing your pickaxe or like, you know, or working like a normal job and or a cubicle job, you know, is the typical idea. They're working their ass off and they are working hard. And then they're confused because they're like, I don't feel any better. Like what's going on? Yeah. I think, I think that's huge is that contacting your values. And then it makes it so much more because people go, I don't have any more time in the day to work towards my values. And I go, that's not what I'm asking. I want you to get rid of your time of the day because all everything you're doing sucks. I know that's use your time of the day more wisely. And so that's, sure. that's or not wise. I mean, that sounds offensive, but I, I mean, like use your time of the day in a way that let's try out some new ideas. And sure. then sometimes they work. Um, most of the time they do. Sometimes they don't. And then yeah. I think that's fine. Yeah. I think something that has kind of stood out to me that I, I've come to, I think that the not having a purpose and understanding values a lot of times for me anyway, has led almost to inaction where an example I, I've read once was if you're walking down a path and suddenly you can see off in the distance on two different directions to go on one side, there's this, you know, these mountains and this gorgeous lake in the middle of it. And it's just beautiful. On the other side is, you know, a, a beach and you stand there and you look at both options and if you go right, 
you miss out on the left. If you go left, you miss out on the right. And because you don't know what you want in life and you not don't have a purpose, you don't have your values, you don't, you're not aligned, you stand there and miss yeah. out on both because you can't pick one because you don't know what you want. And I think that's been a big thing for me is understanding, okay, I've got this and this, I got to pick something. I can't stand here and just stare at it. I got to pick something because I yeah. can miss out on both or miss out on one. Yeah, that's what's really inaction is an action. And that actually comes from a philosophical argument. It's called, uh, oh, what's the guy's name? It's someone's ass. And it's funny because that's the literal name of it, you know, but it's a donkey. Um, <laughs> like, so let's say I'm going to make up a word, Jonathan's ass, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it's called. And I remember thinking, lol, because I was only 17 at the time when I started studying. <laughs> uh, what it is, is that they say that, and this is the idea of decision making, you know, it has to do with philosophy of the mind. And anyway, there's this donkey that you bring up to a city gate. And at the time, there was these two troughs of water, and it's often like two things, the bales of hay. Mm-hmm. And they said that, like, donkeys are so weird, because like, you know, whichever one they're closest to, they just go towards, you know, they're simple animals, you know, they're half mule, half the horse, wait, no. Mule is half done. I've done gathered. Whatever the case, they're not particularly bred for their intelligence. They're just kind of, you know, do what they're going to do what they do. They're, they, they're good at what they do. And they said that, so whatever, whichever one is closer. And then they said, this philosopher said, but so what's interesting is, is what you're saying is that there are these factors that impact their decisions. And, you know, it has to do with like how, let's say one is like one bale of hail is particularly large and tasty looking. Well, there you go. Like, or if you're equidistant from both of them, if one, the wind's blowing a certain way, oh, they smell from the left. They might go that way. And then he said, but what if we used a you know, thought experiment and I isolated all those variables and he stood right, literally equidistant. If I could measure it to the infinitesimal atom, you know, between the two that he would starve to death. And that was his hypothesis. And uh, it would cause a lot of controversy, obviously, because people were like, no, because I mean, you, you have some something that pushes you. And he goes, then what is that? Mm-hmm. And anyway, it became this idea of this quantum, uh, they call it the quantum coin toss, which means like there's this idea that in your brain, you just go tink and it lands and you just go, I don't know that one. And uh, but anyway, <laughs> uh, but you know, I honestly don't think that's true. I do think that um, because the quantum coin toss, first of all, we know that randomicity is in the thing we can create. We've tested that. We can't yeah. do it. We're bad at it. Um, so and computers can't do it either. We don't know how to make random things uh, because there's no mathematical formulation that truly produces randomicity. Same thing with our brains if we're just organic, which we are. They, the same thing with the donkeys. Those in that logic should true. And they die in between. And I truly believe that. And I bring it up a lot because I'm, I'm like, you're right. The funny thing is, is you say that donkey though, is he, it's called a paralysis of option. You have too many options. It's, it's too perfectly appetizing options. But pretend it was 17 or 30 or 80. Um, if you have too many, we're not equipped to analyze those ideas as well. So often we just go, oh, inaction though is an action because I say, I say, you know, in behaviorism, we measure things by what I can observe. And if I can observe you standing there, you're doing something, you're standing there, you're choosing yeah. to stand there rather than to act. I think reframing it as saying like, not walking to the right bale of hay and not walking to the left bale of hay, but walking to the right, left or none. And what you're choosing is none and to die. Mm-hmm. And so um, once people can connect with that consequence, I think if I could teach that donkey English, I think if I could say, you're okay, so you choose to die. He would go, no. And then I'd be like, well, pick one. And then that's when I'd force a quantum coin toss or what really happens is you start behaving towards one and then you make a narrative of why you did it. That's how we think. Then we can force that option. So yeah, yeah that, that's interesting. And it's yeah. true. Like it's, it, it gives us comfort. For sure. And I, I think another thing is the multitude of options. One of the examples I've used is the Cheesecake Factory's menu. When you have so many options, it actually makes it 
almost impossible to make a choice. And you find yourself sitting there just like, ugh, their menu is a, it's a fucking novel, man. It's huge. <laughs> it's, man, how, many, how many different salads can you have? I couldn't imagine working there. It, that would be the worst serving job ever. But I, I think in, in that sort of way, I think that also on, the, on sort of the flip side of, or maybe in conjunction with that is having so many options, I think that also becomes kind of a, a problematic thing where you're, or waiting for maybe, maybe trying to create the options. You know, I want to have all these different investment ideas or have all these different things and not just narrowing that down to what actually aligns with what I want to do. Whoa. Okay. So do you think, I don't know any research on this, but theoretically it makes sense. Do you think that risk aversion, that, that propensity towards risk aversion is what motivates paralysis of choice? Cause you're afraid of that. You said FOMO, you said or yeah. you didn't say FOMO, but you said, you know, what if I make the beach choice and the mountains was right? Yeah. Like, I wonder yeah. if that's not it. I think, yeah, maybe so. That seems to make sense. Maybe it does just kind of come down to that. Just the FOMO. <laughs> it's like, eh, if I, if I pick one then I don't, you know, I'm not gonna experience all the others, but I think the reality is even like I was talking to Holly um, early on, we were first we're dating and we were talking about going on a trip together. And I was like, oh, well, where would you want to go? And she's like, I don't care. We can go anywhere. I'm like, well, I mean, if you had to narrow it down to, to like one choice, like what would you pick? She's like, I don't care. I just want to go somewhere. And I was, you know, so in my head, I'm like, no, no, we have to pick something. We have to, in her mind, she's like, no, I just want to go somewhere. You know, so I'm just like, oh, okay. I'm thinking, oh, I would love to go here for these reasons and there for those reasons. And it's just like, just pick something, you know, we'll just blindly poke the map and go there as long as it's not like South Africa or something, but you know, so <laughs> But yeah, so I, I I think so. I think there's a maybe it does maybe it does just boil down to to the FOMO bit. I don't know. Huh. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, it yeah. makes sense though too because I I also do that. Like I, I return fire when my wife does that. She's yeah. like, like, you want you want to get takeout tonight? And I'm like, sure. And she's like, what do you want? And I go, mm. and like I won't do one. I always do <laughs> two or three. Like I'm yeah. like, here's my top three, and then I give it to him because. Uh, but I'm I'm also like honestly, if I can be honest, I'm also a little anxious that I'm gonna make the quote unquote wrong decision. Not to say sure. that there isn't one. But like, you know, the kids complain, Amy complains, you know, and then yeah. I'm like, well, it's what I wanted. And, you know, well, you're the ones who let me decide, you know, like, that's how you, <laughs> yeah. you don't say yeah. those things, but that's how you feel. Somehow, I think that's how you feel inside because you go, you yeah. will find yourself being like a little resentful, I, in my opinion. I go, well, I don't know. Like, I did my best. Like, I don't know. You know, like, that's kind of what I'm thinking inside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I can see that. As Holly has mentioned that because we've talked and I'll be like, what do you want to eat tonight? She's like, I don't care. I'm like, well, just pick something. And, and you know, a few times she's picked something. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I'm in the mood for that. So she's like, oh, then you just pick. <laughs> you know? right. So I'm like, no, no, you pick something. She's like, no, every time I pick something, I'm like, all right. She's decided she wants me to get one of those, you know, the old speak and say gang, you know, the, the cows, the animals, whatever, and just yeah. put different restaurants on it and pull the string <laughs> and pick one that way. I'm like, all right, we can do that. <laughs> do you know, we actually legitimately did something like that. We took popsicle sticks and put it in a jar and you had to draw without looking we oh, did nice that. oh that's because cool. the exact thing is that yeah i mean yeah it was just this it, it gives you this uh because people are so much better with um coping than we give ourselves credit for first of all but also then um um co coping with randomicity than we do about like you know a choice they made right so mm -hmm. nobody wants to be the last decider yeah so so yeah it, it, it seems to be fine it, which is funny because there's no if it's true that there's no such thing as true random, which, you know, mathematically there doesn't seem to be, and philosophically there doesn't seem to be, and definitely with computers there doesn't seem to be, and with psychology there doesn't seem to be, then, you know, the only comfort that random can give you is that, well, I don't have to make a decision, you know, and like you yeah. don't have anyone to blame. And so it is sort of like a, again, psychology of failure, like we're talking about. Yeah. It's funny. Sure. <laughs> Awesome. I like the popsicle idea. That's good. I'll have to, I'll try that and see what she thinks. Works out. Um, so the, the subject of toxic masculinity versus healthy masculinity, I have a, a little source of uh, maybe a bone to pick with society, if you will, that the idea of toxic masculinity, 
I'm not sure if I think that it actually exists as a concept, like an actual thing, toxic masculinity, more like you think of the douchebags. I think it's more just a weakness and not actually being a strong masculine presence. Um, and so I kind of like, just like a, a, a rundown of things, like, you know, I mentioned the alpha beta thing. And of course, you know, because that came from watching wolves in captivity and whatnot, and wolves in the wild don't behave the same way as wolves in captivity. So, um, so anyway, so jumping off right there, what do you think in your your experience? What do you think, and do you think that exists? Do you think there are truly alpha males by that definition, and beta males, you know, the the weak guys? How do you think that plays out? Um. This is the struggle I always have. It's like, okay, imagine you studied something for like 12 years and then you have to try to put it in a small package. Some people yeah. are brilliant at that. They really are. I mean, like I have so many colleagues who, you know, I've taught, we've all taught like at the university level. And sometimes I just find myself and I'm talking at the end of the 50 minutes, I'm like, or 50 minutes, class of like 200 people. I'm like, oh, so we didn't do anything you're supposed to do today. Um, <laughs> but some people do it perfectly and mm -hmm. I don't do so well. Because on this one, I feel like it's really complex. And part of it is that, sure, of course, there's, we're trophy species. You're going to yeah. have the idea that you're in competition with other males. And that does kind of suck. And there are obviously um, times where uh, we look towards physicality mm -hmm. um, as both biologically speaking, but also psychologically speaking, um, because we're bred to think that way. I mean, like men are, are held less within the first five minutes of their life. They're held less, 40% less than females. Um, there, there's a lot of behavioral things that go on with this. And, you know, and then you teach your kids superheroes, you give them weapons, and then you scold them when they learn to fight and you go, no, like yeah. <laughs> this is part, partly you and partly it is also testosterone. We do see a huge spike right around puberty. Yeah. But here's the second part of it is I, I am in that business and habit, both literally both the business of never scolding the person for, okay, because for, for how they were how they are so like the rat is always right that's a, a term in behaviorism and it means exactly this there was a whole an old old experiment that happened where um we used rats to explain like behaviors so you have them like do like a maze for example and you say like you know let's say you know there's a maze and like there's a, a cheese right here and there's a long one to a cheese way back here well it goes to the short one and you go right makes sense you record it makes sense then you, you elongate it and you try to just determine at what point does this curiosity of this new thing, because rats have this ability, and so do mice, um, they have this innate ability or innate desire to look at new things. So they scurry and they'll go look at different things. And you say, at what point does his, um, his you know, innate desire to go check out a new thing overrate the fact that he goes, oh, that's cheese. I'm actually a little hungry. Um, it's a cool question. Um, but anyway, there was a famous example where they, the rat, um, they put it in and they put the cheese right here. And then the rat would go to curiosity and they go, this one rat, what is the deal? And they do it again and again and again. They're like, he's hungry. He hasn't eaten in a full day. Like we made sure he was like this time we kept pulling it back. And at this point he's starving. Like and he won't get this cheese. And so the, the research assistant says, says, um, what is wrong with this rat? This rat isn't behaving like he's supposed to. And then the famous quote is the rat is always right. There's a reason you don't understand it, but there's a reason he's behaving that way. And it doesn't make, you know, him any weirder. It's just, you don't understand. The second that you think he's weird means you're bad, not him. 
And so um, you don't understand it. And it doesn't mean that you can't be morally incorrect. Like, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer murdered people and, and ate their brains and stuff. Obviously that's wrong. Um, morally speaking, but like the second that you don't understand and empathize with it, then you're the one who's wrong. Like my first challenge was I had to work with a pedophile and I was like, I can't do this. And they were like, no, no, you have to. And I was like, no. And a straight up pedophile, like, a, you know, kids. And I was like, I, I can't, I can't, there's no possible way I'm going to empathize with this. And then, but once we got down to it, you know, uh, victims create victims. And like, you know, there's a long history that this, this person had that had a long, uh, an upbringing that was, um, Oh, horrifying. And at that point yeah. I was like, look, I mean, it's not okay, but I understand those are two different things. Sure. It's of course. Definitely not okay. Pedophilia is the worst thing you can possibly do. Um, maybe pedophilia with cannibalism, but like, it's one of the worst things you do. Um, but I understand it now. And so yeah. um, I think with this here, it's the same thing. Toxic masculinity. I don't like the term because yeah. it'd be like saying toxic femininity. It's the same. There's, there's a similar situation. I studied aggression and um females are more aggressive than males. And that, that's shocking to most people. Because um, you're like, wait, how? And then yeah. you go, well, it just depends. And this this was not by me, me or men, you know, uh, people or, or male researchers. This is by females who, who, who identified this as true. I have nothing to do with this. I'm just reporting science. <laughs> and they said, they said, we just measured it. And the reason why is because they said, we just looked at it differently. Instead of saying like a guy would walk up to a boy and go like this, and you go, oh, I can measure that as aggression. And you would point it down. It's an intent for violence or an intent for harm, not violence, harm. And then another time, you know, they flip their tray, you know, food to go everywhere in the, in the lunchroom. And you go, oh, there's no intent for violence, but harm. Like you want social harm. But once I go, okay, well, it, it measures social harm too. We're in big trouble. Because then what we found was that, that females were actually being um, way more aggressive than males. Mm -hmm. Um, they just don't do it in a physical sense very often at all, which is sure. um, good, I guess. Uh, uh, that's good. I mean, like, hopefully no, no females get hit while they're growing up, but males are getting hit more, but they're not having as many um, social altercations. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the whole point is to say, like, if you frame something in a certain way, anyone can be the other or the bad guy. Mm -hmm. um, just like, you know, I use the extreme of a pedophile, for God's sakes. They're definitely bad people and they belong in jail every time. And yeah. any offense is egregious and terrible. But we have to understand that there's a reason that 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 is that way. And the second that you don't understand that, you're the bad guy, not them. And then we need to not give them any excuses, but we also need to go, all right, that's true. So talk some masculinity. Like my, my idea on that is that um, it definitely exists in the sense that like the concept, it, it, and this is another problem. It's so amorphous, the concept. When you try to nail someone down, it's different a lot of times. Um, but if you just define it as this, there are parts of being inherently male, our male culture. Again, this is the culture. This is not. Um, so if you're not in the culture, you look at it from the outside and you go, oh, that appears to me to be uh, maladaptive. And it is. There's many sure. things we do that are maladaptive males, our culture. Uh, many things are very adaptive. For example, um, like my wife doesn't understand male culture where we give each other shit. Yeah. Um, and I say like, okay, I can understand how you might consider that bad, uh, but what we do know, and, and there's, there are many things we don't know, but there, one thing we do know is that actually leads to resilience, psychological resilience to PTSD. So we found that members, or, uh, individuals who are exposed to traumatic incidents caught or uh, got PTSD less often if they uh, reported like friendly harassment, friendly harassment, meaning I never once thought I was in harm. And I, but I was in, you know, in a sense that others could perceive as like giving me shit basically. Gotcha. Um, so I said, so that's actually a good thing. And like, and it, you know, if you work with veterans like myself, 
then you go, okay, that's actually really interesting. We want to look at that for sure. Cause like resilience is getting millions of dollars poured into it every year right now. Um, so I'm like, you can't, you know, you can't say toxic masculinity is perfectly bad and also say in the same breath, it's very good in some situations because yeah. it is. And just like, you know, you could say, if you said, if you use the t- same term toxic femininity, you'd sound like a douchebag. So <laughs> let's just drop both those terms because yeah. I don't like either of them. I think they're both bad. I think just any culture, male, female, um, veteran, non-veteran, um, minority, non-minority, uh, you know, African, uh, Caribbean, you know, whatever. I think mm-hmm. they all have things to offer. And then they also have things that are probably not so great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So th- that's how I feel about toxic masculinity. I think that we're being a little silly if we pretend like it's bad, right. capital B, and uh, other one, and fem- femininity is suddenly how we all should do. But of <laughs> course, men should have things to learn, of course. But I also think that um, I don't think it'd be completely crazy to say that like people identify as female might learn something from people identify as male. I, yeah. think that's, I think that's a normal statement. Sure. Anyway, no, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, I, I, I follow you there. I think that, you know, for, for me, I'd, I'd heard that term toxic masculinity so many times, and it seemed like almost all those times, like 90% of them were always in reference to the, you know, the, the guy with the tribal tats and the, you know, out jacked up and always wanting to fight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Total. Yeah. Total douchebag, you know, frat douche, whatever. And so I always, to me, I always thought, you know, well, not always of late, I have thought, gosh, is that really, is that toxic masculinity because i don't think that's toxic in the sense that it's masculine i think it's maybe toxic in the sense that his behavior just sucks because i don't think it's because he's a guy that he acts some of those ways you know that douchey shit isn't being a a male i don't think i think that what i've come to i think there's like subsets of things and behaviors that make a guy weak if you will if that's a good way to say that you know things like you think of the guys that can't do anything without asking permission first or needing everybody to validate his opinion you know it's like oh i got 10 friends mask all 10 of my friends if i should do this this business and get all their you know their points of view on it and then he may or may not he still may or may not actually do it those are the kind of things that i think of when i think of like toxic masculinity more in the terms i think maybe like just weak just being a weak person perhaps um i don't know that it's supposed to be masculine that we act without asking <laughs> but um those kinds of things you know the the excessive humility the trying too hard to be cool or needing to be liked so badly the neediness factor you know those guys that are you see those guys that are constantly like oh my, you know telling girls like oh my gosh you're so pretty or whatever that that kind of neediness begging for the attention i guess that's where i kind of roll with that is the is that that's what i see as the unhealthiness of it i'm with you i don't like the term toxic masculinity as it were as i I think it paints the wrong picture. Well, I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, because language is only as useful as it is. And that, that's a big thing in ACT is that, um, or, or you say like, when someone goes, it's not really useful for me to push myself this hard. And you go, well, it is until it's not. Because I mean, the same anxiety, like we were talking about students um, who over, over um, those strivers who overperform, it's, it was useful for you until it stopped being useful for you. And so I think the same thing is like language is only as useful as it is to get your point across. The whole idea, and I tell this to my, to my kids probably six times a week, is I go, the whole idea of communication is to get this into that. That's it. 
And I'm only successful unless I did that. And so it's because sometimes they go, you said this. And I go, I purposely purposefully said that. And the reason why I said that exact word, like if I said, um, you're lying, for example, is they go, I wasn't lying. I just, I knew the truth, but I said something different. I go, right. But the concept in my mind is you're this injurious person to society and this injurious person to society who behaves in a way with, who has a relationship with truth that is unhealthy. And so to say that would be liar. If I said you were non-truthful, then it mitigates your failure to succeed uh, in moral, um, having moral compunction. And so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say liar. Now, I don't agree with the term liar. Everyone lies. Everyone's a liar. But sure. I'm saying that I'm trying to get this to your head. And so the same thing with toxic masculinity is you're saying like, I'm trying to get the concept of um, the bad parts of male culture into your head. Um, that's not a good term for it. And so same yeah. thing with female culture is it's not a good term for me to get the the bad parts of female culture which are, aren't that far explored nor should they be right now because you know we need to we need, mm-hmm. you guys need to calm the fuck down i'm not saying <laughs> not like, let's get into it you know when they just fucking got the right to vote like six years ago whatever it was and yeah. so um i'm not i'm not saying that but i'm saying like you know the bad parts of every culture whenever it's useful to look at it let's do it but the language isn't useful to say yeah. toxic masculinity masculinity because you're either telling the concept to someone who is also female. If you're a female, let's say the speaker's female, then it might be useful because then they go, oh, I understand that. I kind of, this sub, this set of things comes in their head. This is starting to get too geeky, but like, it's like if I say the word bird, you have an exemplar that comes in your head. One bird that comes in your head, right? It's probably a songbird or a flight bird. Probably not an emu, right? Right. <laughs> it is. Or a castle yeah. bird. Yeah. Right. I don't know what that last one was. But those are all equally valid. They were both all birds. Birds. But the idea is we get a exemplar. And then you get a small, and then it's called um, a, oh yeah, a category of things that exist within it. But you only consider that one. You consider the bird. So every time you keep saying bird, 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 I consider songbird, songbird, songbird. So it's instantly scary to me when all of a sudden you're like, and here's the bird about you. And it's an emu and it kills my kids. You know, like that's, (laughs) that's crazy. And so the same thing with toxic masculinity. If you say that, it activates a certain in my mind as this other female and I go yeah I've had some really bad run-ins with males that makes sense I like that um I like I understand the idea however if you're looking to convey any change because you're gonna need to talk to a guy necessarily by saying that word all you do is you uh, you you activate a whole different part of it you activate the emu so then we go no and, and we're just as right as they are to say <laughs> yes. But the difference is we're just not connecting. And so they always go, when I talk to people who are, I, like, I don't know if I'm a feminist or not. I don't, again, this, this has to do with that word. Yeah. I, there's plenty of context where I go, yeah, of course I'm a feminist. Duh. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But there's other times where I go, no. If I was in a situation where this <laughs> really happened, a white woman told a black woman she doesn't know what it's like to be a minority in America. And I was like, whoop, I'm out. So like, I just yeah. I was like, yeah. gotta go. And so I just yeah. left and because at that point it wasn't useful to say that I am for women's rights, of course, but, mm-hmm. um, but do I identify as that term? Yeah, of course. And until I don't, and then I don't, um, anyway. So, so my idea is that the same thing here is that toxic masculinity is exactly as useful as it is until it's not. And so it's, if I'm talking to a, a man, another male, and I say something like, if I say like, wow, like there's toxic femininity and they go, I understand that. And it's pretty useful, but I risk pissing women off. Right. And I really don't want to do that. And I don't think it's helpful. So I'm not really going to do that. I'm just going to say like, oh, there's parts of women culture that don't, don't work very well in today's society. Yeah. And so same thing. Yeah. So anyway, that's, like I said, yeah. I knew I was going to talk way too long on that, but I did. <laughs> no, it's, it's good. It's good. Good coverage. It's so sensitive and it's so nuanced that I think. It's yeah. Good. It needs a long talk, but for sure. I think that that's the, 
that's why I wanted to, I kind of saved that for the end because I wanted to, to, to pick that apart because I, I'm, I'm of the same mind as you are in, in the sense that, yeah, I hate the term and I think that it's not useful, even the douchebag term. Some guy does something, I mean, show me a guy, any, any man saying is, you know, my age and whatever, whatever age that never in his life did something that was douchey. I mean, I can look yeah. back at my early oh, yeah. 30s. Hell, I can look back when I was 40 and there were times I was like, oh my God, I was such a douchebag. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. So I think even that term, like, oh, that guy's a douche. Yeah, you know, I guess he could be. It could be that he is, in fact, that's his what he is. But more, more than likely, he's probably just acting in some sort of unsavory way in that moment. So yeah, I, I just, I guess terminologies aren't always useful. And I think that's why I kind of wanted to, to shred that. And then Kind of well, one, one, one step further, I don't want to butt in too much, but I think yeah. it's super important. One step further, not just terminologies, but narratives are important. So what you yes. said is super important because I learned this much later in life, but it's more useful for me and my mental health and my belief in humanity to assume that that person is not a douche and that they're acting douchey because of some external reason, mm-hmm. because then I have more faith in humanity and I have faith that the world is still a just place. Yeah. yeah. So narratives are oh, just yeah. as well. So anyway, you, you, I, I agree. Absolutely. And even to a great example is, you know, um, when Holly and I first started dating, um, there was a guy that she's friends with. And I actually knew him a while back, several years ago before I met her. um, And I was kind of friends with him then, but hadn't been friends with him a long time. And probably a year before Holly and I met, I bumped into this guy and he just acted in just this horrible way. He was just, just speaking really crass to, to the women around there. And just, it was, it was just gross, his behavior. So I just mm, didn't like that guy. And then when I found out they were friends, I instantly got into this space where I was like, I don't know if I want you to be friends with that guy. He's, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a fucking douche. He's disgusting and all these different things. And I, I got an opportunity to actually talk to him at one point, kind of face to face, just spend time with him. I didn't, you know, like bring anything to his attention, but I think it occurred to me that what I had done was I identified something that he was doing that I didn't like. And I decided that he was this thing and mm. that I was right. and He was wrong. And I just refused to let it go and just, just accept that as, oh, well, he just had a, he acted out because of what other reason. And then when people called me out on it, I doubled down. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm yeah. not just being superior. I'm, I'm right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, and I, I, I realized that. So I guess the, the, now he and I are actually pretty good friends again, but yeah, I think that labeling that kind of put up a barrier and made it almost at the time almost impossible for us to actually have any kind of friendship because I just decided he was this thing and I labeled that. That was that. I, I think in the same way that to some extent calling a guy a douche or a toxic, you know, whatever, I, I think that that kind of does the same thing. I think it eliminates or at least hinders the possibility of uh, healing or whatever, having some kind of connection there. Yeah. And I think that it kind of almost brings us around because you use the term miser, which I appreciate it mm-hmm. um, because there's a clinical term called cognitive miser, which means someone who's lazy about their thinking. And we all are. And it, we're identified as humans as being cognitive mm-hmm. misers. We're um, lazy about our thinking. And so we need to put things in boxes. We need to th- make things. Uh, it's the same reason why you cut up your food into digestible parts. You don't just, you don't just stab your steak and just start knocking <laughs> like spits off. Yeah. Um, because that's how is the most efficient. That's uh, it's the most pleasurable. It makes sense. And we don't have time to think about every single thing. And so often we want to put people in boxes and say like, well, okay, good, bad, this good, this good, this bad, that guy, good, this guy, bad. And it's useful a lot, but uh, way more than we talk about. It's very, very useful. 
but also sometimes it's not and it kind of screws us over um again it's a concept you know what is a douchebag that doesn't mean anything if i bark those words to a you know a um you know a rhesus macaque a monkey he'd be like yeah. what like he'd have no idea yeah i'm like you're a douchebag he'd be like cool and he keeps eating and he's fine yeah. and then but but it matters to us because we have this you know all this this concept all this burden yeah but also i think that knowing that knowing that we're cognitive misers that we we are, you know, intellectually lazy because we have to be, we only have so much time in the day. I can't think about, you know, why this person cut me off in traffic for 12 hours and truly understand it and like interview his friends and family and like, you know, check on his, you know, marital status or his, you know, I mean, like, yeah, I don't have that time. And yeah. so um, because of that, we, instead of double or instead of um, thinking about what we think, how we came to a conclusion, we can, we just, I think the, the biggest thing is we hold it lightly. And that's kind of the best way to, to think about it is that um, your brain is a bubble machine. Like this is the best way to put it. And it pops up bubbles to you, right? Like in any situation, sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not. So like, let's say you're in a situation, you're standing in line for like a funnel cake at the you know, park. I don't know. And, uh, and all of a sudden it goes, it goes, dude, this funnel cake is going to be so good. And like that pops up. But it also goes like, dude, this is fatty. You can't afford this. And then it goes like, <laughs> these people are terrible in front of me. That guy stinks. This, it just keeps offering thoughts. Well, the great thing about us is that we have this great ability to pull ourselves back and observe those thoughts and just observe them and grab the bubbles we want and then let the other ones pass away. Because so many people flick the bubble. They go, I don't like that one. And I go, that's exactly the same as grabbing it. It's like when you say, don't think about a white bear. And then, you know, you go, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. as soon as you interact with it, you have an interaction with it. And then you have yeah. a, you start building a history. So instead, you just allow it to pass and then you grab the ones that are helpful. And so I think that, yeah, in those situations, you're going to have thoughts that this guy's a fucking dick because you're human. And uh, you're also going to have things like, you know, this guy who has a bad upraising, he's got, you know, he's toxically masculine or whatever. But then you just go, eh, like, that's not, that's not one I want to grab. And you just kind of let it pass. Don't scold yourself. Just observe it. It'll go away. All thoughts go away. I don't yeah. stay. You're not like, you know, six years later, you're like, I'm still thinking about those pizza rolls that put in the oven. Like, you know, no, it doesn't happen. And so you wait, and then the ones that are helpful, you grab onto. And so you say like, 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 and there's always a chance that like he, you know, when you grab on those, you know, you find the same thing when you're in a fight and you're angry and you say stupid things and then helpful, those are unhelpful thoughts. And then later helpful thoughts pop up and you come back and you go, sorry about blah, blah, blah. Here's what I actually think. That's you grabbing all the bubbles rather than just letting the bad one pass. Yeah. Grabbing the ones that are helpful. Like when the mad ones come, you go, mm, I'm going to be the present moment. I'm going to observe those bubbles. They're real but let them pass. And then I'm going to grab the ones later here in a second. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I, th I think that's really useful. I'm talking broadly, but also in specifically to the ideas of like um, judging people of different cultures, you know, gender, stereotype, whatever, like just yeah. maybe just let those pass and maybe don't use terms <laughs> that are actively harmful for your own cause. Right. That's my yeah, thoughts. absolutely. Um, I agree. And, you know, you mentioned lazy thinking and uh, I'll plug another book. It's David McRaney, I think is his name, but it's You're Not So Smart. I love that book. It's literally like just a list of, I think there's 40 some in there of different cognitive biases, heuristics, and just logical fallacies, just things that we're totally wrong about. And literally, and I, I read through that book and I was like, wow, you know, and I mean, you know this, I don't have to tell you, we're all susceptible. None of us are immune to <laughs> all these things, you know, we all do it, Cog you know, the uh, confirmation bias to, to whatever. I mean, they're all there. Um, one of my favorites, I think right now, uh, that I really latched onto was the spotlight effect. And just imagine that everybody thinks, you know, whatever it is, they're look up oh, ah, I can see that guy there. He's, you know, whatever size shirt's not tucked in, it's the wrong color, whatever it is, you know, those kinds of things. And nobody actually cares what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, they're, they're more worried about themselves. 
So kind of pushing that toxic thing in, I'm going to pin you down toxic relationships. How do you, uh, what what do you think of, um, because I mean, again, it's probably not productive to call them a toxic relationship in the sense where you're trying to figure out what you should or shouldn't do in it. But I think it's also realistic to say that to some extent they do exist. I mean, there's definitely some unhealthy relationships out there. What are your thoughts there? Isn't that exactly funny though? Because you mentioned, you, you said that, it's a thought I had, and I was like, is that a, you know, a rabbit hole I really want to go down? Uh, is that, you know, when you say the term toxic, it automatically, because on purpose and by design, it's meant to give you an idea of the response you're supposed to have, which is if, you, if someone goes, oh, that that snake you have is venomous. You go, oops, you know, you drop it. Yeah. Or, or that, that those fumes you're breathing are toxic. You go, I need to run as fast as I can. And so toxic masculinity necessarily, I'm like, so you just run? Like, yeah. what are we supposed to do with those people? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But same thing with the toxic relationships is it, it, it is someone judging your relationship from the outside, telling you, you need to run. And they don't have any business doing that. Like I've done marital therapy for years. And I would, and even then, like I've worked with people sometimes five, six years, and I'm still like, I can't tell you if this is the right relationship or not. And I have no business doing that. I can tell you, here's how your values align. Here's how things are working out. Here's your theme. Here's your motifs. Here's things that are working towards and against you. And I want you to make the decision. You're an adult. Like you're a smart person. You can do this. Um, and so, yeah, toxic relationship is not a term you should ever use. And I'm taking a pretty hard stance on that one because yeah. um, just come out and be brave and say it. Because what happens is they want to hide behind these terms when what they really what they're trying to tell you is that you need to get out of the relationship. I don't believe it's healthy for you. That's what toxic relationship means. You you don't get to make the decision. Not a professional. You know what sure. I'm saying? Like you know, I, I understand, but heavily encase that. Then that's your opinion. You know, I, yeah. I think people should say like, look my belief is that's what I would call a toxic relationship. And by that, I mean that it is one that will never go well and it does nothing but poison you along the way. Yeah. And I think that that's a non-coward way to say it. Like, just say sure. it. Like, it, it's like, it, I hate when people imply things, especially in relationships and marriages yeah. and, you know, to say things like, like, well, I don't know where you were. And I go, no, no, stop. Okay, stop, both of you. What are you saying? And then yeah. they go, they go, well, I don't know where he was or she was. And I go, I go, I don't, I don't know where you were five seconds before this meeting. So, and then they're like, well, I'm just saying she could have been anywhere. And I go, yeah, you could have been anywhere too. You could have been in the galaxy. You could have been in the zero zone. You'd be in that place in the, in Superman where they're flying on that little, you know, the diamond. I don't know. Like you could be anywhere, but what do you think they were? What are you implying? And they're like, yeah. I'm just saying like, she has a history of, you know, this. And I go, oh, so you're not saying you don't know where she was. You're trying to say, you think that she was cheating on you. Right. Say that man up or woman up or person up and do it. Like, don't. Yeah. Don't, in, that's such a coward thing to do. And so I say, I, say, I think the same thing with toxic relationships is that, you know, just say it, like, just say it, because that's what you're saying. You're just trying to have all the benefits of saying it without any of the aversives. And that's not okay with me. So I, I think, I think that's definitely not something that people should do. But I also think that um, I've heard people use in the context of both people and relationships with concepts. So I can see how it would be useful with a concept because there's no victim. Sure. Concept. And that makes sense. And, and I, I think I could, I could get on board with that because even in the sense of a relationship where you've got a, a guy that's beating his wife or something, his girlfriend, well, we're not going to call that toxic. We're going to call that unsafe. You know, that's, yeah. that's a crime. Yeah. That's, that's beyond, yeah. you don't, you know, you don't, what woman comes in and she's all busted up. You're like, Hmm, that seems like an unhealthy relationship. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to say that. So yeah. In those cases, I think it doesn't make you need, even in the cases of, you know, it might, maybe it's emotional abuse or mental abuse. Those things are, I think it's still those, we wouldn't call them toxic. We would say, Hey, that's, you know, in, in my opinion, of course, I'm not a professional, <laughs> but 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think that putting these labels on things, and I think that's why I wanted to address those now is because I've hated the term toxic masculinity for a long time. And I've wondered, hmm, does that also then apply the same hatred that I have for that? Would that also apply here? So <laughs> it's kind of why I wanted to throw that out there and just see what your thoughts were on it. Well, I, I think it's 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 uh, really okay. It's, it's almost like uh, when people talk about rallying the troops or mm-hmm. persuading, right? You know, it's like in like people talk about this in ways of thinking like politics or like religious beliefs is sometimes when you're at church and they call it speaking to the choir. That, that's what I would call rallying the troops. Yeah. It's where you turn around and you go we have the only God, they're the best God. Yay. And then, uh, and then you drink coffee and eat some bunt cakes with some lady with a huge, super nice hat. That's what happens at church. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, that's probably as useful as it is as long as you hold it light, light, right. Light, lightly. It's like, well, you know, if you, if you're, if you're a fighter, you know, mm-hmm. in the UFC and you beat a guy um, and you have a shot to the title and you go, I'm the best in the world. It's not true. You know, it's not true, but it sure. feels good to say, and it doesn't hurt anyone. Um, it, it helps you towards your goals. And so I think the same thing with the idea of like, um, as long as there's no victim, the toxic relationship with a thing, or as long as uh, someone is talking to their friend and they're saying toxic relationship, but to make an actual judgment call on it and to convict someone as a toxic relationship attendee, you know, it seems like, yeah. like I don't know, man, like, I can see how it would be useful, but gosh, I see a lot of reasons why it's not useful. Sure. So sure. anyway, it's exactly as useful as it is. I think it's like nice. bad parents. I've had multiple, you know, patients or clients come in who say they're bad parents and they, they were concerned about it. And then I was like, that's only as useful as it is. Like if you're beating your kid, yes, you're a bad parent. Um, or, or it's <laughs> useful to use that term to stop beating your goddamn kid. Right. Um, but if you're like, you know, doing your best and you just don't have enough time and you're doing your best, you're not about, I mean, it's not useful to use that language. You might right. be, let's say you measured it and you were exactly the same as like honey boo boo's mom. Right. That's, you know, that that's still not useful to say, like, there's an objective term for, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, uh, sure. Mom. Cause, Cause you're not, you're like, you're doing your best. You, it, it looks the same as honey, honey boo boo's mom, maybe in some situations, but you know, yeah. that's not, that's not helpful because do you, are you, is your behavior changing? And no, not in a way that's useful. You're just getting more depressed, you're not <laughs> getting a better parent, you know, say something, say something like I'm a good parent who's trying my best. That yeah. That's helpful, I think. And same thing with the toxic masculinity, like the, this man is trapped in a situation or this toxic relationship person is trapped in a situation that has been historically not good or helpful. And uh, hopefully they're trying their best to get out of it. Yeah. Long, nice. long story. I don't know. That's all. It's good. It's good. It's good to have. Awesome. Well, man, that's that's pretty much everything that I had. All the cool. things I really wanted to to dig into. Any any final thoughts you want to leave it with? No, I think uh, the acceptance bit of failure is probably the best bit. Is that we all do it. Uh, we we often conceptualize it as um, digging into our self worth, but it doesn't. It's this weird, useful, sometimes useful lie that like people who fail. Actually, okay, yeah, that's one part. Just world hypothesis. Have you heard about this? No. There's this hypothesis that all humans go by. We all operate by this, and they'll become pretty darn obvious after I talk about it. Everybody believes that we live in a just world. Not that everything's fair, but that generally speaking, that if someone works hard, they do better. And people go, I don't believe that. And you go, yes, you do. Because how do you act every day? Better or worse? And they go, well, better. And you go, because mm, you want it to pay off, right? And they're like, yeah, you, then you do. You're not saying that you believe it does, but you believe that if I try, it should be, it should get better. And if it doesn't, you feel a little, you know, you're like, doesn't feel very fair. Like, I don't like this. I feel bad. I feel like I, I did my best. I expected this to get better. Failure is based on that. And um, it's just not true. Drop that old things lightly. Just understand that, like, I did my best. That guy did his best. He's Jeff Bezos. And I'm, you know, some rando. And uh, we both did our best. And like, 
that doesn't mean that like I'm a failure or that you know things are bad or I'm a bad person. It just means that like it, it worked out, it worked out for them. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Well, thanks, man. Appreciate your time. Oh yeah.